This podcast comes to you from nerdsthegeek.com. It was so cool that we both were watching the movie at the same time. That made me really happy. Yeah. It was funny because as as I was watching it, I was reminded of Tyna saying, you and I watch cinema like people watch sporting events. <laughs> and I was like, this is exactly, <laughs> this is a prime <laughs> example. Because we would be rolling the tape back. Like, uh, the hardest thing about watching this movie for the second time is rewinding it the six times that you need to, un- to get the whole time. I was like, well, Scott and I would Got have notes. to pause it there for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Dude, I have mm-hmm. 10 pages of notes. Oh, I like, why? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where four friends get together and constantly get distracted from the movie they're talking about. I'm your host, uh, asshole photographer Scott Murray. I'm joined today by my friends, a model who thinks he's in Paris, Joel Lewis. <laughs> Hello. A man who I am in Paris. Through, <laughs> a man who roots through glove boxes, Tim Gerard. Hello. Not his and own, prof- though. Have you been in his car? Don't go. Don't open that glove box. <laughs> and professional corpse, Zeke Perez. <laughs> I'll take it. Hello. <laughs> See, listeners, be, just thought of these on the me. fly. Just a little little BTS for this. And Scott said, I have nothing, and just went into that <laughs> one ago. breath. Outstanding. <laughs> uh, thank you, sir. For those of you unfamiliar, Movie Mumble is a monthly film discussion podcast where we all take turns picking a movie, watching it, and then talking about it. That's really the whole concept. Uh, there are no rules. We can pick any film that is new or old, foreign or domestic, animated or live action, a film we've seen a million times or never seen before. The idea being that we get more out of it when we share the experience with each other. I find this has proven to be very true on basically every episode. At the end of each episode, we'll announce what we're watching next month, so you can watch along with us if you'd like. But be aware we do spoil everything we watch, so if you're interested in a film, Watch it before listening to its episode. This month, Joel was our movie selector. He brought us Blow Up, the 1966, well, I was going to call it Italian, but it's really sort of a British-Italian movie from Antonioni, who uh, has been on the podcast once before, this director, for Red Desert. Joel, do you want to introduce anything more about the film or someone you want to summarize? I can summarize for sure. Um, sure. Yeah, this this kind of came at the, the tail end of my um, Antonioni binge. I watched Red Desert first. I went back to his first three Italian trilogy films. They're, they're loosely connected, more thematically a trilogy than any kind of continuity. 
um, La Ventura, La Clase, and La Note, which is uh, the trip, the eclipse, and the night. Um, and then I watched this one, and it it's incredible. I it, it's it's strange. It's also it's it's very modern in comparison to the other kind of uh, uh, the Italian stuff that or the Italian based films that Antonio had done before. But it, it really surprising weird kind of slow burn strain i don't know it, it's very art deco in a certain sense um very different from the previous films so it follows this unnamed photographer um we kind of follow him out of a uh a dos house which i had to look up what that is it's a um, shelter for homeless men in britain where you could get a shower and a bed so he's kind of been masquerading there and taking photos and we find out that he's actually this kind of affluent um, photographer. And uh, he's kind of moving through these different uh, scenes of like, he's living with this woman and there's an artist that lives with them and taking these pictures and you see him in a studio and all these things. And you kind of follow him through these kind of strange few days. And he it kind of culminates in the most exciting and most interesting part of it is this scene in uh, a park where he takes a, a couple pictures of people like these two lovers, this man and woman or this strange interaction and uh, gets caught taking their picture and this interaction. And then as he kind of investigates and, and blows up the photos, he discovers somebody's been murdered and he inadvertently captured the evidence of this happening. Um, and it, it, it's really straight, like plot wise, not a lot happens. You follow this, photographer kind of going back and forth between these different spaces in the 60s London and it's very kind of true to the era it was shot in that is how London appeared in 1966 I've since learned that swinging London swinging 60s London is an Americanized term the Brits don't like it when they we call it that um so it's just a very specific very strong aesthetic um and it's 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 interesting because it's about art and capturing art and evidence and kind of what what happens to something when you're blowing it up to to learn more from it and how it kind of disappears before your eyes and becomes more distorted and clearer at the same time that's really garble i i it's it's a strange film it's hard to describe to people and i'm really glad that we're what we watched it together you guys can kind of fill in the blanks of what i'm because I, I wrote 10 pages of notes on it I went back and watched the sequence where he's blowing up um, the, and it's almost like a moving storyboard. And we don't even see the scene that he capped. Like we don't see the pictures that he takes until he's printed them out and blown them up. So that when he puts those photos in conversation with each other, it's so interesting and such a different, I don't know that I've seen anything like that in a movie before. And so it's, it's ethereal kind of, again, trying to describe a plot in it. Like there is a murder mystery at the center of it, but that, it's at the center of it, but it's accidental, almost in, in, in inconsequential to what the film does. And I uh, just really, really fascinated to hear. Sorry, guys, I really garbled it. I seriously, I, I think I wrote everything down and it's emptied my head about it. Like, <laughs> and like, it's based on a short story, which I ended up reading later. I hadn't read that when I had, uh, but I had the book. I had the book on my shelf for like six years from a creative writing class. I don't think we read that story, but some other one. 
So I went back to it and read it and had to read it again and again. It just kind of sits with you and I don't know, festers in my head that story. I don't know if you got, I had sent the, the PDF around. I don't know if everybody read it or sorry to give you more homework on top of this like really dense film already. But yeah, I'll, I'll kind of end it there. I, I was fascinated by it. I was on my Antonioni streak and this one is different. It's not Red Desert. It's not his black and white films. And it's it's in English. It's the first one that he did in a, a country, not Italy. So it has it has a very specific place and an energy. He borrowed an actual photographer's studio. So those sets that we see, that's an actual studio. Um, yeah, it, it's really kind of like a snapshot of art in a really interesting way at this specific time in the 60s in London. I don't really think you harbored that, Joel. It's it is an inherently difficult movie to explain, especially if you're not going to just, you know, exposit your way through scene by scene everything that happened. That's what a lot of my notes were, actually. Now I'm thinking about it. It's like I'm writing down what happens because watching it the first time, you're just kind of following this guy around, you know, and you don't know. And that's the thing, like watching it the second time, if you guys ever watch it again. Like, that's the hardest part about it is, like, stopping and rewinding and trying. Because now you know what where to look and what what where the strangeness is, kind of. And you're it's because that central sequence. Sorry, I, I jumped in again. But, like, that central sequence, the idea of those photographs and the way it becomes a story and becomes dynamic, even though they're just stills, that looms so much larger than everything else. It kind of eclipses everything. So, yeah, continue. No, I just, I, I agree. It's. It's inherently difficult to explain, and it's not what I expected it to be. Because until now, I've never seen it or um, Blowout or etc. You know, any other. But it's funny you talk about it being not Red Desert because it felt very Red Desert to me. Hmm. Not just aesthetically, but you know, both of these films involve following this person as they drift listlessly through some form of reality that happens around them, almost without their notice or involvement. Sometimes. But to very different ends and in very different ways. And I think our protagonist in Red Desert is much more passive. And I think our protagonist here is much more active. And yet, he's still also not very active. He sort of ends up making choices unintentionally, mm. you know, or, or sort of falling into certain decisions. And I just, yeah, I saw, I saw a sort of a common through line there, almost that maybe Antonioni, I, I, this is the only two of his films I've seen. You know, he could make a whole series of films about people drifting their way through life, all of which come up with different, what's the word I want here, themes, different morals, right? Sort of different points to them just because of the settings that we watch this character drift through, right? And that's part of why the film is so so difficult to explain because on its surface, it's man does things for a few days and gets involved with murder mystery and i like that's it what else do you say you know he gets involved is like he makes a call to his his agent right. even that's <laughs> like, involved is almost too deep so. zeke and i like to track bad police work in things like this is <laughs> speaking of which so i don't know i'll save it for later about the the dispatch radio help me remember to talk about that um i'll i'll just keep plowing ahead and talk about my first impression which i guess i just gave to you that it it feels very red desert but also by somehow simply changing the setting and not necessarily changing, you know, the murder itself almost being secondary, giving us the same. My point is it's not the same journey, right? It's you're going to do the same thing again that you did last time. You're going to follow this person 
as they drift through life. But because everyone's life is in a different time and place, it's a different journey every time. And yet again, I think maybe the point of the film is for the viewer to apply their own experiences as a filter, you know, and come away with a different experience. And it was not what I was expecting, because I was expecting a murder mystery in a more traditional sense. But it was very good. And it, you know, it made you think in a way that most films and most mysteries really don't. And it really stands up well next to Red Desert, I think. I, I love the idea of the two of them together as these two parts of a whole, sort of unintentionally. I also didn't read the short story I, on purpose. I just, you know, the this film is mentioned so often as a great film in general, and then also Antonio and as a great director, and then et cetera. I was like, that, that's the, the prior experience I want to bring to this. I don't want to suddenly change that prior experience at the 11th hour, so... Yeah. Zeke, Tim, what about you two? First impressions? You can go yeah. first, Zeke. Okay. Yeah. I think um yeah, I was gonna use Scott what you said as a as a good segue. Um because I do think it I do think it made me think. Um, which I always value in a film when I see a movie and then I'm thinking about it afterwards. I, I really enjoy that rather than one I just throw on and you know, it's kind of it is what it is. But this one does have me thinking about it. It, it does have me thinking about how I feel about it too. Um, I think I'm back and forth. Uh, you know, I think it's beautifully shot and I think the, the very subtle suspense and how that built was very nice. I think it built suspense through the mundane, right? Um, it's not actively building tension in the, in the way that a typical thriller might, right? But it, he kind of goes on about his day or even before the discovery, like everything's building um, almost too slow of a burn, which is where I kind of am stuck because I don't know. I, I do wish he had reacted more to making the discovery. I do wish there was more of a solution to it. Um, I think I wish that the stakes were higher too. I, you know, you see somebody gets murdered and kind of just goes about his day but then that's where I get to thinking about it, right? Because that's kind of the point of his character and that's who he is. And it's all very intentional um, that he witnesses witnesses this thing and then just keeps going about the day-to-day. And it kind of, some of the things that happen earlier on that don't seem very consequential end up feeling more consequential to the character when you're thinking back on it as a whole, um, just because he's, kind of comes off as this eccentric uh almost an asshole right and oh he's an asshole it's, yeah he's certainly an <laughs> asshole he's yeah, certainly an absolutely. asshole yeah and everything's about him and so you know a little murder being discovered is not going to throw him off what he wants to do or him living his day-to-day life so i do think it was very intentional in that way i think where i'm stuck is probably just a modern feeling like that that desire for instant gratification which this really doesn't give you um, I think I wanted more, like I said, of a concrete solution or more instant gratification rather than a flowy uh, movie, which it is. I do also think, you know, when I, I turned it on to watch it, the synopsis is a photographer discovers a murder in the background of a candid photo, which feels like it could get very suspenseful and thrillery and almost horror-y, right? Like I would be interested in a, in a retelling of this or just other versions. I know there are some movies that are close to it, but just something that's almost more horror-like. Um, you know, even the, the, I don't know if she's an antagonist, but the woman who he photographs, 
comes up to him very suddenly and strikingly when he takes the picture and is like, I, you can't take photos of people. Please give me the pictures. And then she hunts him down. Like if that were a, ho- a horror movie where a photographer gets hunted down by someone who he actually accidentally takes a picture of uh, being involved in a murder or whatever, that would be a whole different thing. Whereas this didn't really seem to matter for him or for her in the end. It kind of just like, no, eh, whatever. Yeah. Kind of rambling with a lot of feelings now, but it was kind of all over the place which I liked, but then I'm also struggling with. Um, I did give the short story a little bit of a read, and I think that almost made it click for me because the short story is very... Did you read the story before or after watching the movie? After. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I read it, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, because it's very rambly and very all over the place. Even from the first couple paragraphs, the, the author's like, you know, I'm not sure how to tell this or what tends to use or who's telling it or who knows everything's a mystery and everything doesn't matter so reading that after seeing it i was like okay the movie's <laughs> based on that that makes sense to me um but no overall i really liked it and yeah i am just kind of thinking of that i guess of the consequence of it all um and the artsiness of it all but uh yeah i don't know i liked it uh, for me one of my one of my first thoughts was i i liked how they kind of established his character, you know, like, and how, yeah, like he starts off like wearing those clothes, kind of walking into the studio and you're like, what, what the hell's going on? And then, you know, scene later, he's like shaving and putting on nice clothes and you're like, Oh, okay. That was part of this thing. And you see kind of like how entrenched he is in his work, um, which I, which I really dug. And I, I also liked that, um, you know, that they, yeah, they took the time to sort of portray this sort of like, freelance artist and and what what the world is like and how he's able to do those things because it's like oh what does he do for money oh he's in the process of writing this photography writing you know making this photography book you know and it's like okay doing these series of shots and and you get to see how he's able to just like drop everything go wander around take some pictures so there's definitely a part of it that like that that was like oh man like what a cool life you know to not be like Oh, I have to get to work. It's, it's quarter of eight. I'm going to be late in 15 minutes, you know, and then we'll check back in with me at five o'clock, you know, and the story stops or something, you know, it's like that, that idea of, um, you know, being able to kind of go with whatever whim he had and how, you know, you know, good work comes out of that, you know, an unsupervised Um, artist. Yeah. 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 So that, that was, that was really cool. I really liked that, but also how he kind of like had this team was also really neat. You know, it's like, here, get these developed here. You do this here, you know, like being able to have like, you know, this, it looked like there were like two assistants, two different guys who were doing things. And um, yeah, being able to kind of like focus on the creative part and be like, okay, you know, like, you know, obviously he can develop pictures, but he doesn't have to develop all of them. He can pass some on. It's like, I've got to go on to take the new stuff, you know? So it's kind of neat, like seeing some sort of, you know, like composer parallels to that, you know, um, you know, having this studio, this space that you could tell was like carefully and, um, eclectically cultivated throughout time, you know, like the, the, all the different pieces he had in there and how, um, you know, one of the, one of the best, uh, explanations or definitions of eclecticism I heard is that, you know, that, um, everything matches because, or or because nothing matches, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's this, it's, it's such a a vast collection of so many different types of things that that's why they all go together. You know, whereas if you had like one style and then one piece that was out of that style, it's like, Oh, this doesn't belong here, but because nothing belongs to each other, that's what makes everything belong. Um, and I thought his space was a really good representation of that. 
and like you know like with the propeller you know it, it was funny too trying to like decode the film like how much of what he's doing is plot and how much of it is just establishing who he is as a character you know like like i thought the antique store was going to play a bigger part mm-hmm. in the actual plot and it was like oh no he's just i have to have that propeller right now you know i love it you know and and just oh that's just who he is that's that's what this is telling us you know so it was really interesting and at first like i didn't know if there was going to end up being much of a plot or something. And then it's like, okay, here's the thing, you know, but, but yeah, like I, I I liked how much they put his character together. I also really loved watching him move around his space because how awkward and possibly treacherous his space was, (laughs) you know, there's that one part where there's that kind of like walkway that like runs along the wall of the building. That's only Mm -hmm. about maybe two, three feet wide. And he's like running along that, you know, like, and it's like, okay, not that you would die, but like, there's like what an eight foot drop before you hit the ground. You know, there's just that space where he's hanging stuff. And um, one of, I'll, I'll jump in while I'm kind of talking about that really quickly say, also say my favorite scene. And, and this came to me like right at the end as it happened where he's, he, it's towards the end, he's thinking about something and there, there are these like beams that he's been interacting with and other people have had a duck underneath and he, he moves perfectly Doesn't he? through them without he looking, without, you know, and just like, it, he's just done it so many times that he knows where those beams are. He's probably hit his head on them a bunch of times before he learned better, but he's so lost in thought and just kind of backs up and perfectly misses both of them. And I was just like, like, okay, yeah, that's a, a great layer to show just how, how lived in this place is and how comfortable it is and how it is his, his home, you know, um, so, so that was sort of one aspect of it. Another layer, one of my other impressions was it, it did remind me, and it was interesting, you know, saying like, oh, he's definitely an asshole, but his, his character reminded me a little bit of the main character from, uh, I, I forget the actor's name, but like the, the main character from A Clockwork Orange and Caligula, um, reminded me a lot of him, but, but not as much of an asshole as him, you know, if you compare. I agree. Th- yeah, this guy to to the guy from A Clockwork Orange, you're like, oh, he's not that bad. You know, he's not, you know, breaking into people's houses and raping and murdering them, you know. It was interesting, to, but, like, the way he floated through life, like we've been saying, and, like, and it, like it's kind of his playground, and it's, like, you know, no, and sort of no consequences type of thing, you know. And, and I think that's another big part of, like, with that sort of unsupervised actor, I don't know, I mean, um, unsupervised artist, is that you you definitely get this sense that there's no... There's no, there's no sense of consequence to him. Like even when he's talking to his, his agent or his publisher or whoever, you know, the way he's kind of making all, oh, I'll have them spread out. No, I want them all together. Like I feel like usually in other movies, when you see like a writer or someone talking to their publisher, they're in trouble because they haven't delivered as many pages as they said at that point in the story and the publisher's breathing down their neck and they're like trying to, you know, make excuses, whatever, you know. But the fact that like no matter who he was talking to, it's like, he was in charge. He was in control of the situation, you know? Um, but like, yeah, like I said, he wasn't as much of an asshole as, as the guy in a clockwork orange. So you're like, okay, I can, I can palate him a little, uh, or he's a little more palatable because he's not as, you know, as much of as much of it as him. Um, and then also oddly enough, it reminded me of a, another Kubrick film, uh, especially towards the end. This really hit me. Um, it reminded me a lot of um, eyes wide shut. Um, like the part when he's like kind of wandering and he ends up at that, that bar where there's a band playing, which to me seems like totally random. Like, and like given the, the rest of the I know film, exactly what you're talking about Yeah, in relation to eyes wide shut. It's perfect. Yeah. 
And and well, and, and I mean, in that part of Eyes Wide Shut, but even like leading up to that, where where Tom Cruise is just like wandering around New York, happening to go into different places and interact with people and having these interactions, and you know, you you come out of it like, well, what was what was the point of that? What was what was you know, was that supposed to lead to something? And you know, and they 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 after you the movie's said and done, you're kind of like, oh, well, that was kind of random. That didn't need to happen, but you know, and I guess that was kind of the point of just like having these random interactions. So I definitely got a, a sense of that. Yeah, and and that also you know there were elements of some sort of like when he when he goes to the party at his agent publisher's house. Yeah, like not that it was an orgy, but you definitely get this sense of this like you know high society underground kind of like thing that you're peeking into. And this sense of like, what happened? Nothing happened. Okay, just drop it. You know, like that type of thing where, okay, I, I don't get to know what's going on. This is all above my my head, my pay grade. Um, it's very so American was... psycho that way too. Now I'm thinking mm. about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. The idea of like the the upper it's class having things. no, no uh, expectations, no morals, no uh, limitations. There's no nobody telling yeah. them they can't do it. No restrictions. Yeah, um, it's and, funny you mentioned Kubrick. This isn't isn't going to go anywhere. But one of the <laughs> notes from later in the film, when the band of mimes shows up for the second time, mm-hmm. and like, oh, it's raucous, it's again, raucous mimes, raucous, <laughs> yes, like, oh, it's music, it's again. I feel like Kubrick watched this movie, said, "I hate you people. I'm making you into droogs," and then went off to make a clockwork art. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Sam, please. Yeah. No, yeah, and, and and um yeah, I remember I remember watching this and I was like, is is this a French film? Like when that, that started with the mimes at the very beginning. It's like I, I didn't I didn't think he was French. Okay. It's cause it was the most French thing I've ever seen, a fucking clown car full of mimes. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> but uh so so yeah, so that was all the stuff I really liked. So the one thing and, and and I'm hoping to maybe open this up for discussion and you know, I like to kind of frame stuff like this as like maybe I missed something. But I, I like the idea of, um, oh wait, sorry, I had one more thought before that. Is it's funny watching movies like this and be like, how movies like this could not be made today because there's the internet, you know, and like <laughs> how, how so many things like, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there like and, and almost losing patience, like, like just fucking Google it, you know, like, like where he's doing so much stuff where it's like, how do I figure this out? What do I do? How could I possibly, you know, like, um, like, you know, like w- with that woman and she gives him the wrong number or something, it's like, Oh, look for on social media. You know, it's like, like, like this is what would be done nowadays or, or like, Oh, go to Google earth and get a layout of the park. Like when he's trying to figure out where she's looking like, yeah, go to Google earth, get a top down view of the park and see, okay, they were standing here. She's looking that, you know, like things like that, that it's like, Oh, that's, that's totally not available. <laughs> you know, like, um, so yeah, it was just funny. Like how, um, and I think, you know, I feel like this, this, that type of thing comes up a lot in, uh, in a different way, but in um, Stranger Things, you know, where they're setting something in the 80s. So you get to actually do things, you know, that that you can't do. And if you're telling a modern horror story, if that story had taken place now, it's like, oh, yeah, well, there's all this, this and that. You could explain away so many things that happen. But it's like, yo, that wouldn't work because someone would do this on the Internet, you know. So like, but, but we can do that, you know, or like, or like the kids don't have cell phones, you know, like things like that, you know, like I thought it was funny. Yeah. When he's like calling the person and like, oh, they're the, okay. I'll go pick him up there that he had to physically go somewhere to talk to the guy. Cause he wasn't at home where his phone is, you know, and like that, that wouldn't be a story element. It would be like, okay, I'll call him on his phone. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. We're having this conversation right now. And, and how, how much 
more external he had to be because of the time period and actually going to these different places, not just like, oh, let me call the, the you know, let me call the antique shop and see if the owner's there now. Like, no, he just popped over there. Like, let me see if she's here now, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah, so I, I noticed that and thought that was funny, but it's, but it is refreshing. I do like seeing stuff like that where everything has to be so much more tactile, you know, like he wasn't looking at, the pictures like either on the little screen on his camera or, Oh, let me just upload them to my computer and zoom in and enhance, you know, doing all this in Photoshop where we're watching him stare at his computer screen for like three hours, like having to physically develop each shot and figure out where it is. Okay. Now, you know, I feel like, yeah, like we could do a modern remake of it with, with, um, uh, um, Ryan Gosling, by the way, he would, he, that was the other thing too. Is like, like, Oh, if they ever did a remake of this, they'd have to get Ryan Gosling to play in this guy. But like, I feel like the movie would be half an hour long because like all the processes, which again, like I like seeing that, Oh, this is the way things had to be done. It would have, they would have taken five minutes, you know? Um, you know, he'd be looking at those same pictures on his computer and doing all that editing to zoom in and whatever without having to do the thing. Um, also I really liked the, the, the dark room stuff because my grandfather was a photographer and he actually had like a dark room in his house and, I remember it was really cool as a kid going in the basement and seeing it. Like, I don't think he was ever developing film while I was there, but like, I knew that was a thing he did. And whenever he took pictures, he developed his own pictures and he'd do like family photos and stuff like that. And it'd be like, Oh, cool. This wasn't just like, take this camera, take some pictures and send it to Walmart and, you know, get your pictures back in a day. This was like him doing it in the dark room and having the chemicals and the paper and everything. Um, so that was really cool. Like seeing that whole process and, you know, that, that sparked a lot of like personal nostalgia for me. Um, so anyway, so the thing I'm like confused about is when he's putting this stuff together, number one, there's one element and I, I wanted to go back and watch it, but I couldn't because I finished right before, well, <laughs> I finished into the podcast. Um, so the part when they're like, they're like hugging and he sees that she's looking in a direction, like it seemed as though that picture was taken from a much different perspective than where he was. Cause we kind of see like where he is, he sees kind of like the two of them. And then when he, you see the picture of them hugging where she's looking off, it's more like it was as if it was taken from here because she's almost looking more towards the camera. And he didn't move that much in relation to where they were to get to that side. Like they would have had to turn. But if that was the case, now they're looking almost she's looking towards him, not towards the bushes like where that was. Number one, number two, and this again, I could just be wrong about this, but are they trying to say that the dead body was that guy that she was hugging? Or is it just that all old white men look the same to me? Because when he goes and finds him later, it looked like the guy that she was with. It is. But then how did he get a picture of the guy laying there? Because when she runs off, she runs off after him and he goes away. Like, does he go back and take more pictures after? Like, no, how did so, he get Yeah, it's right at the very end. They, so, they go around the bend. Guy gets it, murdered. Yeah. She runs off through the same meadow and he takes a few pictures of her as she's running away. Oh, okay. I guess her back is true. And so I noticed that because sorry, Joel, please stop it. <laughs> no, there's just those there's three trees, right? So yeah. and he, I mean you there's that one really I rewinded it a couple of times. There's one where he creeps to the second tree, and it's really right. funny to watch him go backwards and do it. I've watched that quite a bit. Because <laughs> the spacing is really interesting. Also, we don't see the setups for the shots that he blows up. We don't see those until he's put them up. So there's continuity missing there. Like where, like 
where he's snapping those from gets a little bit lost in terms mm-hmm. of like where he is. But he start he snaps a few right as he comes up uh, uh, with the there's the one branch that he's like kind of does. So oh, yeah, that's one like tree. Pull it down, yeah. And then he goes across and he goes along the ridge. Like, seriously, I watched this back a couple of times. Goes along and the like fence. Hops over the fence, yeah. Hops over the fence to a, a like a th- point of the triangle tree. Goes mm-hmm. to a closer tree and then retreats to that first tree that was towards the entrance. So I don't know where, like, it, it, he does yeah. a lot of, like, mapping and it's really inter- like weird how Antonioni frames it because when we're looking at him, at, at the photographer, the angles are weird, either from above or to the side. It, like, it really kind of closes off a part of that space every time it's showing you something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's exhausting to rewatch, <laughs> like trying to place where that is. But it is the the thinking is the shot occurred when they were on the stairs, so she runs back, and when she pauses by the bush. She's seeing the body and then she runs off. That that's where he's getting the picture. So the picture blown up of the body, she's standing right by it. He's just zoomed in on the small the the lower portion of that photo, and that's what gets blown up. Yeah, but the reason I noticed at all was that like later when he says to his agent, Hey, I've got this really killer stuff for the end of the book, a woman running through a meadow. And I thought, Oh, like so he's already decided that those last like four pictures out of that whole stretch of him taking these candids, those are the one. The rest are crap. Those are the things he's putting in the book. Like that struck me, right? How much her departure from him struck him, and then especially how he was like, "Oh, it's gonna be floaty and light, and I want to end the book on a hopeful note." Like her fleeing from him after a tentative agreement to to get incriminating photo. Like, nothing about that. That situation was hopeful or optimistic or positive, but that's what he was seeing. And I just, it, that one statement pointed back at those specific photos in that one moment as super important to him and also gave us an insight into the way the character thought. So that's why I noticed later he was looking, it was like, oh, like the murder happened while they were standing there talking. And it was those last few important photos that made the difference. So do we do we hear a gunshot at that point? Some at some point that we kind of like okay. So yeah, that, I think that was part of it too. Is like if I had heard, like I didn't know that the murder actually took place, and I was like, yeah. So was, I feel like yeah, there were a lot of like maybe missing pieces that I was like, did I did I miss something? Was that there and I just didn't catch it, or was it not there? Or like no, I we don't. And I mean, if you want me to be like serious defender of the movie, I'll say, well, <laughs> I, maybe the guy had a suppressor and maybe it was small caliber and he stuffed it up his jack, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think in reality, Antonio just plays with sound throughout this entire film in ways that suit his, his, his uh, desires instead of reality. <laughs> and I think that lack of gunshot is either on purpose to preserve the mystery, maybe that's all it is, or you know, representative of the way our, our main character was focusing at the time, right? That he didn't notice the murder until he saw it later in his photo. So he can't have noticed it when it was happening, and therefore the audience can't have either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he goes back later and he's poking around the park, I'm like, I was sitting there and I was like, what does he think he's going to find the body? And then he yeah. <laughs> looks down and, and like, finds the body. It's not very like, covered oh, okay. either. It's just hanging out. It's just there, yeah. It's like, all right, that's fine. Yeah, I also that was love another the... question. 
too like like why because like he wasn't standing there why like did he walk over in the bushes because the guy called him over and then he shot him and then just left him there or was he dragging them into the bushes and then the woman mm. came up and that's why he had to just run away and if that's the case why did he like wait so long to come get rid of the body because like he goes back and he sees the body and then he goes back again and it's gone so at some point someone came and got rid of the body but it's like you know why i feel like you wouldn't wait that long to get rid of it because yeah someone might find it i think that's part of why our photographer is so aimless because it doesn't really have the feel of a, you know, dangerous conspiracy that's kind of like off you for having been nearby at the time. It really feels like this crazy, oh, neat, I saved a man's life, turns into, oh, shit, I didn't, turns into, what the fuck is going on, turns into, my apartment is empty, turns into, like, do I really want to continue being involved in whatever the hell this is, or do I want to just not, right? And it definitely feels odd from a practical perspective that our character doesn't find the body and then go to the police immediately, right? But it, it fits in with the overall arc of this man stumbling upon what he's not quite sure and never really being clear on what he stumbled on or how big it is or how much he should care. That's something when, when he's calling Ron his, his agent and he's wanting him to go with him, I see that as like, I'm not going to the police because I can't verify that this is real. Have I, have I, because there's a lot of dissociation and separation from reality in the character, right? He's doing so much to manipulate everything. Like in, in the way eight and a half is Fellini's film about directing. I think this is Antonio's film or Antonioni's film about directing. Like the way this artist moves people and just puts them in a frame and snaps them and just moves them as like raw materials, the way he treats people. There's no real connection. He treats people like objects throughout the entire film. Right. And even like when he's that salacious uh, uh, sequence where he's straddling the model to get the, the view down, there's like this sexual energy. And then the second he's got the shot, it's done. It's all, it's gone. It's like he can't get excited about anything. And for some, he had to get something... involved so that the shot would be real, but it's only real insofar as until he gets the shot. And then he has right. this unwitting subject, right? Like th- this, so it, it's intriguing, right? That that's interesting too. Uh, how he interacts with her and how she's resistant to it, but also like he can bend her to his will in the same. Like she becomes raw material in that too. Like it, it, it's very much about like his interaction, and then he captures some truth. Right. Like he he captures an event he wasn't meaning to. And he's like, where how do I connect the dots? Is this real? And then like the idea of the photograph not being art, but being evidence. Right. And the way that he came about putting this whole story together was all within the technology of blowing up the the photo. So by the time he has the thing, right, the the his wife, girlfriend who's sleeping with the artist um says it looks like his one of his paintings right like by the time the last thing that he has is kind of a substantive this actually happened is so deluded for being blown up to that it it he doesn't have anything to substantiate his claim so when he goes to see ron i'm thinking like come and see this to make sure that i'm not crazy that's how i interpret it and then when he's gacked out of his mind he's like well He's seeing shit I'm not seeing, so maybe I'm just gagged too. Like, and then he falls asleep, and that. So that is also part. Of, and then he goes back, and it's gone. And I, 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 it's hard to 
think about the resolution of that, like kind of it fading away and there's nothing and having no, because that's the thing. Like, why wouldn't you go to the police? You're affluent, you're an artist, it doesn't benefit you. And then you can't, you can't substantiate the claim. If you had the photos, you could say, Hey, this is what I did here. Here's the evidence. It was here, but now there's nothing there. And then there's the, the ending, which I think is also playing with that kind of, what is mooring this artist to reality? What is it that he can point to to say that is real? Because he's doing so much manipulation of things. And then he gets manipulated out of, out of belief in this thing that happened, right? Like he had the evidence before and he had the physical, like even photo evidence, right? And then it's gone. Like, and then he participates in the, the pantomime and by in the same like i don't know like i'm very academic and silly about this like it makes my brain just I, fire I like it i like because it, it, Keep it going. in the same way when don quixote picks up the pot and turn puts it on his helmet and imagines that it is a helmet and that he is a knight of chivalry it's the same thing in this the second he tosses the tennis ball back and interacts we hear the thwap of it going he's back believing and forth. so hard that it becomes true and so like and then he disappears he fucking fades out of existence in that last shot so it's that that i i have a real hard time with like where is it real where is it not and then like the conspiracy of like them getting all the photos back and leaving that yeah so, like because not only is he already like you said you know doubting then his whole apartment gets cleaned out yeah that's scary right and I think that's a really great hint to just stop. <laughs> like he seems to <laughs> seems to realize that he has a choice. He could choose to just not have this problem anymore, right? On the other hand, maybe he feels like he should. He feels an obligation. And then I think whatever you said, Joel, about he's not exactly sure where the the base truth of it begins and his own interpretation begins. And there's a big kind of transition. Sorry, guys, I'm just monopolizing but there's a big transition after the threesome right and we can we need to talk about the threesome and it's the adr giggles over the top are a little at odds with the terror that looks like what's happening on screen but also like the actresses have said that like it was fun like it was meant to be a romp like the literally the name of the scene is a romp among these things so that that's a little weird and it's hard to not see that through a modern lens but at like he has that after kind of the realization of oh i saved somebody there was a gunman and then he ruminates it's and then after that he he can't stop looking at it and now he's fixating is like okay i saw that and i left it alone but he kept thinking about it and it became more and more murky and scary because that's witness to an averted murder is different from witness to a murder that, oh, shit, I should go and make sure that I could substantiate. Because that's the thing. The gun, having a gun in a park, I mean, you could you could point to that and say, hey, that was illegal. But now he thinks there's a body. So he has to go and substantiate that claim. And that that I don't know, like he he plays most of it silent, too. It's such an interesting performance. I wouldn't say that it's like flat or like, I don't know who this guy is, but it, you can kind of see that he'll kind of come out of the shell to get these things out of the models and to get the shot. And then he goes back to kind of zero. 
And it's kind of interesting that and the most alive he seems is when he's kind of going through the photos and more more of the action that we see is the camera moving between the photos and zooming in. That is more more of the action of the performance, right, than the actual actor saying anything or doing anything. It's all within the POV of the camera, which is really strange. I don't know where I started with all of that. But thank you all for listening to it. Uh, you got 10 pages to get through. So. <laughs> and that's the thing. I, I, at a certain point, this one's just so dense. Like, there's so much to unpack about it. So I was writing, and then halfway through, is like, do you want to watch the film or do you want to write notes? Like, what is, what is the end game here? <laughs> so. It's a lot of him seeing something and then not being sure that he's really seeing what he's seeing. And then every time he tries to confirm it, it changes. Something else happens. Right? I wrote that initially in the film, the camera work, right? We're there, present. We, the audience, are a person standing there and present with this guy. We're his his hanger-on, right? You know, that lost dog that follows him around and sort of hopes to, who knows what like, happens with these sorts of eccentric artists. You know, one of those hangers-on is the word I like, right? And then as soon as we reach the park, we disappear. We stop being physically present. And we bec- it becomes just a more traditional, you know, omnisciently present, not omniscient, but sort of externally presented sequence of events, right? That we were witnessing rather than being present for. If that, that was something as, as he was approaching that kind of that meadow area in the park up top, we're seeing it from the meadows perspective as he comes up through these different, and it was reminding me of Stalker where the only, only thing that enters the room in Stalker is the camera. In the same, so this is a garden where the thing is going to happen, and we don't get to look at it until we've seen him enter it. And it's really interesting when he comes back; it's the same way. And then the third time when he comes back, we follow him up the stairs rather than greet him as he's coming up. We follow him up the stairs, which is really interesting. Kind of the language of discovery in in that moment is really cool. What's interesting though in that inverse is that in Stalker. The camera goes into the room, and it's the only thing we know of for sure. We don't ever really know what the what the men did at the end. Mm-hmm. I think it's unlikely, but it's possible that they could have gone into it. We don't know because the camera enters, the men remain outside, and then we move on. This is completely opposite in so many ways. Not only are we following the character this time, but we don't move on. That's the thing that anchors the entire movie, and then we return to it multiple times. Yeah, that's a really interesting take, Joel. Actually. I didn't think about that at all. Well, and the men stalker are looking for something specific, or they mm. think they are, and they don't necessarily get what they're looking for. This guy doesn't seem to know what the hell he's doing or looking for, and then he keeps finding things and not necessarily wanting them. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> this is a paper. Someone get someone start writing. So you got that? You had brought up like kind of the pacing of it, and it, this is one again. Like I can't put it on in the background or anything. Like I'm. I'm just fascinated with kind of the clutter of the frame in it because every, like the studio is so claustrophobic and the way he frames kind of Vanessa Revgrave and I think it's David Hemming are the actors, the way they're framed amidst this. And I was talking, <laughs> uh, Scott and I uh, previewed a little, we were texting back and forth because we, we finished it at about the same time last night, but it's, it's a visual cacophony. Every shot is just chock full of stuff. And so I'm, and then when he's setting up the shots and stuff for, for the photography, I'm just like, 
my eye like they could say nothing, nothing could ever happen. I'm just enjoying looking at it so much. And that that's what's engaging about it for me. It, it's not anything pushing it. I'm just discovering these visual delight things. And that there's a, there's a sequence when he's driving back from the antique store and he's going into the city and it kind of goes from those kind of grayer working class houses to the sh- uh, shining uh, skyscrapers. It's almost straight out of playtime. It felt very like Tati yes, because of the way I he's driving. Playtime in one of my notes. <laughs> he approaches <laughs> the more modern section of Britain. The future yeah. is coming, right? Playtime, yeah. shadow looms. Where they have all of those posters where it's like, visit sunny Morocco, visit Vegas, and they're all the same glass building. It just made, let, instantly made me think of that. So that that's kind of where, like, I, I sometimes bring things and I'm like, oh, it's so exciting. It's so cool. It's like nothing happened. It's just, just because I'm like, oh, look, a painting <laughs> for two hours. <laughs> and I guess that's more like I love that sequence again where the uh, they're all kind of spread out like slides, like microscope slides. or And because of the coloration, they almost look like uh, butterflies that get pinned in those displays, like those really mm-hmm. macabre things. So just like I love that, and there's a Hannibal scene that, that mirrors it. So I'm I'm looking at it from that kind of the aesthetic, <laughs> and the 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 blocking is always something I'm really interested. Like what did why they, I sent another shot to Scott where the the frame is divided, and in the background on the couch you can see Vanessa Redgrave and kind of her uh, uh, animosity and uh, uncomfortability, and then you see the camera. It's out of shot to her, but we can see it, and we, it just tells you everything about that dynamic. It's just putting them next to each other on the screen. And that's just so cool. <laughs> no, yeah, I felt a lot uh, of the same. Um, when you mentioned the clutter of the different shots, that's funny because I went, after I watched it, I went back to look for a specific scene and I won't spoil it now. I'll save it for favorite scenes. But I was looking for one very specific thing that was a movement uh, and, a, and a specific camera shot. And like, I had to rewind and fast forward like, 10 times because I kept missing it or like I couldn't quite track it down because there's so much visually that's going on that it was hard to pinpoint. And then when I did find it, it felt like a much bigger thing the first time I watched it. But when I actually did find it, it was maybe, you know, maybe a 10 or 15 second moment. So I kept missing it, trying to look for it. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of great visual stuff in there that tells the story. Um, There's another, again, won't spoil it yet, but there's another second favorite scene where it kind of frames the characters with a visual prop, I guess, in the middle and how it's shot and how the camera moves. I'm spoiling a little bit, but not really. But anyway, like I'm describing it, but uh, I don't know. There's so much that's packed in to how the characters are, are built and how they're developed with just how they're followed, how the camera moves, how they interact with the environment um, th- that I think I appreciate too. That's not just set up front or not more um, the opposite of subtle, right? Like it's all very subtle in how they're brought together and how the story moves along. Something else I'm noticing about Antonioni's work is he makes his actors walk around a lot. Like in the studio, you Mm. see them dive under the thing, under the beam, across the scaffolding to the dark room, the dark room closed. Like you see every step of the thing in another and because of that space like it's such a great interesting space right like where you would put the camera and stuff but like normally you see the person like drive in 
and knock on the door and then they're in the room that they're like for some like he's he shows you every point of it which is and then he clutters the space he not only makes them move it's a there's not there's dialogue but i wouldn't say this is a dialogue heavy film but what what's happening is he's we're seeing these people move more than anything else which is interesting i guess that's something also i'm i'm finding that i like is just movement study and how let's let's put 16 things between a and b and see how they walk there also in character i that i'm now just that's kind of coming into focus for me um but i was thinking again with the the clutter like when they go to the antique shop that whole thing is busts without heads or with heads it's all heads and then when they frame shots between like outside you see the out he's talking to that the older clerk who was just such a dick to him when he shows up. And then outside you see their little heads framed against these giant unproportional heads with, uh, I don't know, just the interesting, I don't know what that says about anything. I know there is a lot of statues and stuff in England, but like just the, the head uh, um, surplus (laughs) is just really interesting in that shop. Just thinking about that design. That's it, it, it. it's not something you put like it's not dialogue and that that's something like I love that too like I'll put on a Coen Brothers or I'll put on Tarantino right even though Tarantino will use silence right but when he's shooting that that fast talking high trousers back and far like he, he's good at that the way he, he does that the cadence of that but like this I just feel like all I can do is stare at it like that that's the only way to watch it is it's through the visual like it almost could breed silent. Like, I don't know that you would have any less information except the Herbie Hancock themes playing in the background. And then the Yardbirds. They go see the Yardbirds. <laughs> so a little clarification on that. So he thinks he sees Vanessa Redgrave out of the corner of his eye. And he looks down the street and tries to chase her. And he thinks she goes into the club where the Yardbirds are playing. That's why he goes there, I guess. Weird, Jimmy. I love that. I love that Jeff Beck breaks his guitar. Also, this is a story. Little lore here. The Who were the band to smash guitars at this time. Okay, and the manager for the Yardbirds met with Antonioni, and he got like he had planned to have the Who, and it had them on contract. And he said, "No, we didn't. They didn't invent that. The Yardbirds did." The Yardbirds had never done that before, broke a guitar on stage. But he lied through his teeth to Antonioni to get him in the film. (laughs) And Beck, I'm sorry, that was a really feeble guitar smash. Can I just, like, oh, so sad. And I love that at the end of it, Jimmy Page is sitting there like, we're finishing the gig, man. This is, we're we're getting paid for this. He doesn't miss a beat. He's like, I'm... (laughs) It just, makes the guitar look fake, that it's so feeble, right? And yet it falls apart anyway. It makes yeah. it look like a prop guitar. Of course, in complete contrast to the Hateful Eight, where they smashed a real guitar by accident, and it looks so easy, it looks fake, you know? When I read that about that one, that, that made me really sick. <laughs> tragedy, yeah. And that's why um, Jennifer Jason Leigh, right? Is that Lee? Yeah. Jason? Mm-hmm. Lee, yeah. That's why she freaks out for a half a second when he starts to swing the guitar. You can see she like, <gasps> and then she stops and gets back in character because <laughs> she's the only one on set who realized that it hadn't swapped for the prop guitar. But she, and she almost broke character, but she didn't. That's the true then, evil of Dahmer Goo in that movie is her yeah. not coming out of character to tell uh, him about that. 
Fucking Tarantino. Um, like, pay, pay attention. Somebody pay attention. <laughs> I don't even blame <laughs> Kurt for that. <laughs> it's, it is weird. It's weird that, you know, for someone so detail-oriented, right, that uh, he didn't pick it up. But, <laughs> yeah. but that I love that guitar neck bit, right, where the photographer takes the guitar neck and leaves with it, because like the propeller, it's a thing. It is a useless, inconvenient thing that he sees art in and goes, I need it. But in this case, he tires of it immediately. He, the moment he gets outside, he's like, why am I holding a piece of garbage? And he puts it on the ground. And, and did you like... see the other, the passerby goes and picks it up yeah. and then puts it back down. So much of that is like the totemic nature of art. Like it yeah. is connected. The, the significance of that guitar neck is that Jeff Beck smashed it at this show. And the, the, the power, the mythology that gets imbued in that object in that moment. And then the, the dude who randomly came in, who has no desire for it, is instantly thrown away. Like, it, it, yeah. without the context of that, it has no value. And I think that's very much a microcosm of the whole film. It's what, it, what is the value of art? Where is its context? Like, his, his taking those pictures in the thing was, here's how I'm going to end my book. That was its value. And then it became evidence. And then it just that that interaction was really fascinating. It's like when Andy Dwyer is like, oh, I was wearing this shirt when I tackled Eddie Vedder. So it's twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that, that shirt might mean a lot to you, but anyone else is just a T-shirt. <laughs> and look, I would have kept a broken neck of a guitar. Like that's that's my nature. OK, <laughs> I don't disagree with it. But what Antonioni is saying is really interesting. <laughs> Should we do favorite scenes? I kind of want to do favorite scenes. Zeke, you, you hinted a little bit earlier. Do you want to start us off? Yeah, I can do that. Both mine, I mean, there are others, but the two that stuck out the most take place when Vanessa Redgrave first goes to his apartment to try to get the pictures. Um, and they're just very, I don't know, sharp, quick, beautiful camera movements. But there's the one where she's kind of pacing the floor because she's so anxious and frantic about wanting the pictures. And anytime she moves to the left, it zooms in on her. And then anytime she moves to the right, it zooms out. And just that tracing of the character felt, I don't know, it felt really cool. It felt like it was building the tension. Um, and I just thought it was a really cool looking shot. And then immediately after that, there's that big wooden beam that hangs out in the apartment. Joel's excited. <laughs> Yes, I'm very Same excited. Scene. Yeah. Um, and she's kind of hanging out to the left, or she's hanging out by it, kind of leaning up on the beam. And it, it traces um, the photographer as he comes over to her to the beam. And it's kind of the camera's kind of centered along with the beam, but it's looking at it kind of at an angle as he walks up. It follows him walk up. And then, like, as she walks away from him and the beam, it kind of pivots and follows her. It's hard to describe, but the way that the beam and the camera interact with both of the characters on either side of the beam was really cool to me. Um, and, yeah, we were talking about earlier about how the different movements or different placements of those characters kind of frame who they are and what their intentions are. I thought that wasn't one of the most... Um, glaring or exciting ones that stuck out to me, just how that beam kind of physically, you know, drove a fork in between the two of them. I so love that shot toward the tail end of that sequence where he kind of steps over the couch and, or at one point, one of them sitting and then stands up and the, 
it it doesn't move with them. It'll mm. obscures their the uh, head and shoulders, but the body language of the scene doesn't change. And all we're seeing is torso and calves, and this the the dynamic is still there. It's just so interesting because in a thing about obscura and and clarity, right? Like the it's all about capturing like a clear image, a clear idea of what happened, right? Like to throw so much in the way of the story you're telling is also referencing it. And like, Tim, I'm so glad you caught that movement, that, that little, that angle thing. Cause I, I didn't catch that the first time this time I saw it and I rewound it like twice. I was like, Holy shit. How did you do that? I'm sure he had like a bruise from like getting it wrong so many times, but it, it, it's effortless. It looks effortless on screen. It's such a great move. Tim, that was your favorite one, right? Was that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I, I I liked a lot of a lot of the stuff in the studio of, like, yeah, like any any time he's just moving around the studio, not necessarily when he's like, you know, photographing people, but when he's just in his space by himself, like the like the dark room stuff and the all of that, like any yeah, just just seeing how how at home he was in that space, and that that shot was the pinnacle of that, you know. Um, it reminded me almost like I remember years ago I had a comic where it was like one of those issues where we're taking a break from actual stories and going to do a random thing. And it was basically giving a rundown of like Spider-Man's powers. And at one point it said that like he can almost use his spider sense as not, not like echolocation, but if he's in an area that he's familiar with, like he can walk, walk around like either in the dark or if he's reading something and it'll kind of steer him around things because it not that it's danger, but it's still giving him a, an awareness of what's around him. So it kind of reminded me of that, just that like he can just move and his body is instinctively going to go where it needs to go to keep him space and keep him safe, not have to be like, where's that beam? I got to duck under it, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it like reminded me of that. And it just showed like how much that was, um, you know, like I said, his space. As always, I'll talk about two scenes. Um, two things. I, Leading into the threesome and that whole sort of middle section, we see almost every time we see him, he's through glass or framed by something or, or like mirror. mirror. Like we see him just in his space a lot in the first section and the third sections of the movie. But in that whole middle section, we don't spend a lot of time looking directly at him when he's home in his own space, which is great because it's sort of sort of brings physicality to the way that he's become less i want to say like less angry in reality right but just it's a little less yeah here's him he's in space here's what's certain and firm and sure and it's a little more everything that's happening everything's happening to him everything he's seen is now through some lens or filter or framing or obstruction and it's not as clear as it once was even though it is, all the shots are really clear. We can see them really well. And I just, I love that. I don't necessarily know what it means, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then I just, I loved the last scene. I love that, you know, he hopes hard enough the way artists often hope with their work, you know, as a, as a work of will that art is as much as anything else. And it works. And we start to hear the sounds of the game. Or it, or it doesn't work, and it goes the other way, and it moves him into that non-existent space where the game is being played. And whichever way that goes, it's a brilliant moment. I really like the ending, too. I didn't like it originally. Anytime mimes enter the chat, I'm like, why? 
that that's definitely my like i i don't know mime is a terrible thing to waste your mime is your money that's my favorite line from spinal tap uh billy crystal telling his mime staff your mime is your money um i don't know like my favorites this time were a little colored by a video essay i uh, watched by discarded image on youtube um and they just kind of pinpointing this line that the artist says, I think Sam is his name or Bill. I can't remember. There, There's no names. Nobody cares. <laughs> like he didn't name anybody in this film. <laughs> I guess the, the uh, photographer's name is uh, Thomas, but he does. Nobody ever says his name in it. Um, but the artist, when he, he's looking at what those great drop lit style paintings that he does, which are really captivating. That's the other thing. It's like, there's so much like actual art in the back of these things because he used an actual studio. He used the, the living quarters of, of people who were actually doing this kind of work in, in the place. So the artist says something about afterwards, I find something to hold on to. No, that's not the part, the beginning of it. Um, the beginning of it is they don't mean anything when I do them, just a mess to start. So like the idea of like clarity or vision or like just and then what he says is, Foley departments having fun this episode. That's me. Um, afterwards, I find something to hold on to. It uh, sorts itself out. It adds up. So this idea of like that, I mean, the imposter syndrome of being an artist and all those things of like, are my in- am I just my influences? Am I aping? Do I have anything in mind? So it, it's something kind of freeing about the idea of like starting and it be like the, the, uh, the sculpture is already in the marble. You're just cutting away from it in the same way. I, that quote has been used. And when I always hear it, it's like that he, he could see it already. It's already in the thing, but this is more like, I'm not sure what this will be. And I like, I'm more like that in art. I think, I, I, I think I try to, to approach it from that, or I hope, I hope it works is what I'm saying more than anything else. I hope it's okay to just dive in and hope something comes out of it because that's the only way I've found to be able to do it. So I, I really like that. This time it kind of characterized it. And again, with the mimes, this time that video essay drew a really good comparison in that opening scene between the mimes and what the photographer is doing because they're both imitating life. He is pretending to be homeless to get pictures of these people, right? Like, so that's how it starts. We see two very different imitations of life. And one is subtle and trying not to be discovered. And the other is deliberately not so. So I think how he's kind of a mime, you know, like he's trying to represent life or represent art, whatever those two things mean. And at the end, he finds that the the, the truth the reality is whatever you're believing in, or like I wouldn't want to put a thesis that firm in it, but he he decides to play in the mind. He's like, well, if it's all a game or if I can't find any truth, I'm going to believe that this is real and then it becomes real. And then he disappears. So I, I don't know. There's something to the think, therefore I am. I art, therefore I am. I art, therefore I'm not. All of that is kind of coming in. <laughs> It's only one beer, I swear, boys. Like it's just, I really that confluence is really interesting, and I I kind of dismiss mimes because I, I they are kind of they're antiquated. There's no their place in in modern art doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. So it was really nice to kind of have something that oh they're there for a purpose. This isn't just 
it's kind of like the circus music in the, uh, I was going to say the eye doesn't lie, which is the thin blue line parody from documentary. Now that's not what I was trying to say. <laughs> anyway, all of that to say my actual favorite obviously is the sequence between the photos where the camera is doing it. It's like La Jete, which is the, the photo collage film that inspired 12 monkeys. Um, it's French film and I I've seen bits and pieces of it. I haven't seen it all the way through, but like the idea of the collage and just still photos telling the story. I don't know the, the way the camera moves, the way it reestablishes the space with the blocking of where the photos are put and what he focuses on and how we see him choose the point where he's going to zo- zoom in. And then we see it bigger and the way it interacts between Redgrave looking over her shoulder to the bushes. Is that a face? That's a gun. That gun is way clearer than it should be. Like there's definitely, there's definitely two photos in that, but like it, it's, it's so dynamic. And all he, all he did was pipe in the breeze. Like I, I say only the, like the, he, at one point he goes to put on a record and there's the Herbie Hancock music in the background. But it, I don't even know how long it lasts because it fades away almost instantly. It's on and then it's gone. And it's it's silence. And then when he has them all kind of staged, the, he, the Antonioni put in the wind from that first scene. And it's just, it, it's a departure. It's its own film. What he does in, in the space of that sequence is fascinating. And and it, that that was like charged. I, I didn't care what happened afterwards because I was just like, oh shit, go back to that, go back to that. What was that? I didn't know you could do films like that. I didn't know you could. It's a storyboard of a scene that we don't see. You know, like it, it's literally like I don't know. It's the cross section. It's. And like I want to say in your defense, I guess preliminary defense. You're basically <laughs> just describing a montage, but. It's so much more to just say, oh, yeah, it's a montage of him examining his photos and then discovering the thing. It's like, I mean, God Almighty, it's like describing the moon landing as, yeah, some dudes did some science and then they, like, lit stuff on fire. <laughs> it's so, it so does not capture the real weight and impact and effectiveness of the scene, you know? So, because you said, oh, it's like a storyboard. Like, yes, and a, a storyboard that freezes us to the plot point and set to music, right? But like you said, it's it's somehow set to music, even though you can't hear the music for ninety nine percent of the thing. It's still set to music somehow, right? I, yeah. So I, if if anything, he's saying is any listeners are out there thinking, oh, this is just like a clever montage. Yes, it's a clever montage. It's it's, it's, it's a so remaking dynamic. of the montage. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's so dynamic. And I don't like, I keep thinking, but like, I saw this promo for a master class with Ron Howard once, and he was talking about the two shot. And it's like five seconds. He's like, two shots great because you establish so much. You know so much about the characters, about where you place them, what the power dynamic is. Just by putting two things next to each other, they become in conversation with one another. And he did those with photos. And I came to see a movie, and it was no less. It was just as intriguing, if not more so, the second he put those two photos. And that's the thing. It starts from the two photos. The the birth of the plot or whatever comes from mama photo and papa photo. And that that's, and the, just seriously, you put them next to each other and start cutting between. I, it, it was POV in a different way. It was it was a, mont, or a, a montage collage from the POV of, it was just 
fascinating. It, that's the thing. Like I had to go back and watch it again. It's long. Like it's not, I guess to yeah. throw it to someone who's not me, <laughs> how did y'all feel watching that sequence? Like, did it, did it, if I, if it's just me, that's fine. Like I'm okay <laughs> being over here, but I just thought it was really fascinating. Yeah, no, it was, it was, yeah, it was really cool in a way of, you know, like that, that's, that's his medium. That's his, the way he understands and takes in the world is through photographs. So to kind of have the, the understanding of how, how to manipulate them to kind of find the things he's looking for. And like, and and along with that, one of the things that I found really interesting was when, yeah, he was going back and forth between the pictures of the body where I think they show the one where it's like the extreme close up first. And you're like, what is this? And then it shows the one before that where it's slightly zoomed out. And now in context, you can see, Oh, that's the shape of a body, you know? So kind of playing with that, like, yeah, like, like almost the idea of like, okay, like how, how, how blown up or zoomed in is too much because now you're really losing what you're looking at. And that, you know, yeah, that being the point where she's like, Oh, it looks like one of his paintings, you know? And it's also interesting. Like when you were talking before about like the art and the, the marble, I think, you know, I almost wonder if this is meant to be like, mid 20th century like commentary on mid 20th century art in general where like i feel like yeah the the whole marble thing it's like like art up until the 20th century was you know at least as far as i know most people are trying to make stuff look like other stuff you know like you're doing a marble sculpture of a person or you're doing a, a painting of a still life or, or of a landscape you know and it's i feel like a lot of how people were given value is how maybe how realistically they can represent those things. And then you get into stuff, the, uh, um, you know, the, the impressionists where it's like, Oh, we're doing this kind of watercolor washed out version. So it's like a, a dreamy version of, you know, a lily pond or whatever, you know, and then it starts, I feel like artists started completely trying to reinvent themselves. Like I feel like up until the 20th century, people knew what you had to do to be an artist. And part of that, that comment you said about him being like, you know, would, would you say like, it's all like a mess or it's all garbage. And then I, I kind of find that through line um, or whatever. But like, I feel like that's what a lot of it is, is like, you can't rely on, Oh, this is, this is how you be an artist. You, you paint really good so that your thing looks like the thing. It's like, how do you be an artist in the 20th century? And, and that idea of, yeah, it's not about, that one perfect photo that you took that you were in complete control over. It's you having to kind of take a back seat to reality and capture that. But then you find some sort of common thread that unites those things, which, you know, art wasn't done like that before, you know, like you didn't sort of, I mean, you know, like <laughs> there wasn't photography up until relatively recently, you know, like back in the 17, 1800s, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to take a series of pictures. And, you know, when cameras were first invented, it's not like you just be like snapping a hundred photos rapid fire, you know? So it's like, you know, that I feel like that type of photography as an art form had to almost be invented. Um, and I don't know the dates as far as like when camera upgrades were made and when all that came about, but it's still relatively new compared to the history of art. Um, so yeah, so I wonder how much of that was just meant to be, you know, and kind of including that, that painter and kind of having that as the comparison. And, um, you know, I was thinking about like with pointillism, you know, you can have pointillism where it's like, oh, it's a bunch of little dots, but if you look at it from far away, it looks like an actual picture of actual things we recognize. But then when you have the abstract pointillism where it's like, no, it's, about the dots of color and what they look like in and of themselves, not that they look like something else. Um, so it was interesting, yeah, that they were making that comparison of being zoomed in, you kind of too much, you lose 
the fact that this is supposed to be an actual thing and it just becomes like abstract art in that sense. And, you know, I think that relates to what he was saying is, you know, kind of you, sometimes you stumble upon things like, oh, this could stand alone as its own work of art because the arrangement of the dots looks really interesting, you know? Um, so, yeah, so I don't know how much of that was what he was commenting on, but, but just, yeah, it made me think of that. And, you know, and again, looking back on an older film, like this was what you said, like 66 was when this was made. So, yeah, so close to like the mid 20th century, as opposed to being, you know, 20 some odd years into the 21st century, like all of that is kind of old news, but that was the time, yeah, where I feel like the prime of the 20th century is redefining, yeah, what art and music and all that stuff is, you know, how do we make art? You know, we're not just, continuing the same way everyone else did it just a little different or a little better it was like you know fuck all that we're doing it completely differently you know and how do we do that you know and so i think that was that's a really interesting perspective that was probably more at the forefront of people's minds at the time it came out and we kind of take for granted now that it's like oh yeah we you know we're used to this type of art now, you know, like maybe it was much more shocking watching that guy paint and seeing his paintings, you know, and, you know, at the time it came out. Um, but you know, now it's like, oh yeah, whatever, you know, if, you know, Jackson Pollock has become a joke every time, anytime someone does something that looks stupid, they say it's Jackson Pollock, you know, like I was watching Great British Baking Show the other day and someone made a mess of a cake and they're like, oh, I did Jackson Pollock. It's like, fuck you lady. Like, that's not, <laughs> it's not cool. You know, <laughs> you take his goddamn name out your mouth. <laughs> the Pollock to you. <laughs> Just makes me think of like clarity and truth, abstraction and art. Like, the less clear something becomes, the less true it becomes, the more artistic and abstract it becomes. But through the abstraction and art, there is truth to be dealt. Like, that is, it, I think that's not an old news discussion. I think that's still very much at the forefront of what art is and how we're trying to interact with it. Is But like, yeah, the, the and photography as one of the newer, me- and that's the thing, like, Every art movement, every art medium has these the development through these stages, right? Between uh, photorealistic to abstract, like that whole cycle comes through music, comes through art, comes through poetry, like, and then photography and now film and vine, I guess, I, whatever the next four, the hollow, whatever, whatever the next thing will be, we'll have how close to true life can we get it and then how weird can we get it? And I, I think that's that's really interesting because that yeah that's and this is like a very popular art like the 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 most experimental of arts was also the popular art at this point like that like who's getting the the magazine money are these kind of pushing into this more abstract art in this which is really kind of interesting and then you have the artist who's like I'm not selling this one like this one's not for that that interaction with it too it's not a very mercenary film. It's really interesting because the photographer like goes out of the the homeless shelter into his roles and then is going to buy an antique shop and then just buys a propeller on a whim. So like in terms of like a financial equity discussion of the starving artist, this one really doesn't apply at that time. Just another interesting context. Zeke, what did you think of the the conversation between the photos? Uh, jokingly one. I liked the the gun. <laughs> Yeah, showing up. Just, just, this is very funny. Just, just a gun. To see a little yeah. gun popping out of the bush. <laughs> um, no, I yeah, I thought that was one of the most suspenseful scenes. Just the progression of the photos, and I thought that was really well done. Um, 
and just yeah, I think probably one of the more entrancing and engaging sections of the photo when you're thinking about it in terms of a typical murder mystery, maybe, right? Um, just to be able to, for the artist to come on the discovery in that way um, through their own work. And I thought the a scene, um, I don't remember how much earlier, maybe like in the first third of the movie, um, when he's first presenting the photo or first going through his own photos and presenting some photos to um, his agent, right? Yeah. He's kind of like flipping through the different ones. And um, I thought that was a good parallel too to the, to that later scene where he's, um, you know, going through them, developing them. And and to Tim's point, I thought it was really cool to see kind of the progression of it through the dark room and everything. And just the, um, yeah, I guess like the hands-on development of the pictures, there's another word I'm thinking of, but um, yeah, no, I, I really like that chunk of it too. It still looks a little bit ridiculous. In that yeah. <laughs> very sixties sort of like it's going to be you, it's going to have wood on it, it's going to be, and I wish it really rings a bell. And I really wish I could like pin down something similar looking. I've been googling here. There's a really similar weird ass looking gun used in one of Connery's movies too at one point, but I think that's like a small rifle that somebody assembles. And I oh the one that he gets in the briefcase. It's a maybe. Bond film, right? You said Connery. Connery, sorry, Bond, yes. Right? I, I knew yeah. exactly what you were saying. He has the suitcase gun. Yeah, that's definitely... <laughs> but I, that's a little Scott speak for the rest of What else has Connery you. done? No, I, um, but... The one where he's wearing this the, the red uh, uh, dominatrix suit, whatever that is. <laughs> Dr. Zaz or whatever. No, it's not right. Dr. Zaz. I don't remember what it is. <laughs> he's um, like but, in Forbidden Planet with the space pistol. Right. But the, the point being, it, it just looks so odd and there's that like two-tone effect between the barrel and the everything else and it's huge and it's just like as soon as i saw that i was just like oh that's so 60s well see in my my response too was like oh that's photoshopped <laughs> i'm just like <laughs> obviously not <laughs> that's the other thing I... so much more in focus than everything else around it it was like i don't think that this isn't actually there <laughs> so the other thing is like i mean those photos had to be taken, right? Like that's not David Hemming getting the, that's like a, a photographer. And it was funny because Antonioni auditioned a few. It kept getting photos that were too good from people. It's like, no, I need more. I need it double processed. I need it to be, I need it to be more obscure. And that was a really interesting thing to dial. That's the other thing. Like for a director to get so much about photography and visual art and like the, like the, the, in the same way, trying to capture the art some ruins it, you know, like the Pollock thing with the documentary where he's doing it over the glass looks great, but that's not how he worked. You know, the, the, um, I just laughed in my head because I was going to say mumble. That's how he mumble works. That's the new, the new, new sensor. Sorry. Um, the way Antonioni moved the models, I guess, on set was not how photographers work. He was much more strict and much more tyrannical. Um, it's interesting to compare him with Kubrick because like both these kind of directors, super artistic and it's, it's a quieter Kubrick. Like this is a less violent hole at the center of it. I think he was a tyrannical director, but not to the the extent that Kubrick was. Um, but like, it, it's interesting that in capturing, he, he captured the feel of the sixties and the art movements there. And so many of them in it's also like, it's a snapshot, right? Cause you could, the yard birds are kind of pushing this hard rock thing. 
the uh, underground punk is going to be coming in soon. Like all of those, sh- and he's he's buying an antique shop in a, a a rundown neighborhood that's becoming trendy. Right? He's on the phone, the car phone, to his agent talking about. This is where the weirdos are now hanging out. That's essentially what it says. That's where it's going to be hip and cool coming in. Um, so I, that's also an interesting, like, for a director to capture the spirit of art being made without ruining it is is also a, a fine line that we've seen in, like, the Pollock film and, and those. I guess Zeke has, we'll have to do another what if cycle, Zeke. Sorry, Scott, we're not doing it this week. We're skipping <laughs> you. We're going back to it. <laughs> Um, yeah, just the idea of the director capturing other art forms so accurately to a period as it's happening, which is really, it, it becomes this kind of historical artifact in that way, which is another thing, <laughs> another one. I definitely put that, my first real note, like just time-wise, is when we get to the park and we stop being present, right, and the filming method changes. That filming the photographer, that whole park bit, it's almost masturbatory. <laughs> yes like, just the way the filmmakers are like yes here is this visually based artistic process at work oh, you know it's it's and all that falls away of course once he encounters the cup and starts that you know the plot gets off the ground but it's funny because all the stuff you just said about you know what the film has to say about art it felt way less way less heavy-handed i guess once the plot got going which a lot of films sometimes fail to do they set out to do some philosophical or artistic message and just they just pour it, you know, which can can be good. I don't don't always dislike a really heavy handed film. You know, they can be good, they can be bad. But here it it was sort of shaping up to be a weird artistic statement in your face film with what was made strangely. And then suddenly the plot happens. And it's great because it the film itself goes through the same transformation the character does. Right? He's sort of just living this you know, full of art life until suddenly he's involved in the murder and everything changes. We discussed earlier the ways his behavior changed, you know, and that sort of thing, right? But the film does the same thing, right? It's there with him in the trenches, neck deep in pretentiousness until you're in the park and then it's sort of third person pretentiousness and then the murder happens and it's all gone. <laughs> it's, all, it's all mystery. See, that's something about the short story, Zeke. Like you said you had just gotten through the, the beginning of it. It's so much about a tense discussion and kind of the, the summation of it. Like, I, I don't want to, it's, it's essentially like a pared down version of this, but like of the film, but the idea of like writing from multiple tenses, but also a hypothetical post-mortem tense. So like in the, it's, it's a very strange piece of surrealist writing. I don't know that I've ever seen a story kind of work in narration a surreal narrator and i that reading it the first time it's like very pretentious it's like okay we've all done the masturbatory writer thing is like how should i start should i start like this and it's usually for me i've always used that to like fill the page because i have a, a word count to hit it's an easy way like hey let me over explain my intro and then i can get to whatever the meat and potatoes of the thing is but upon the third fourth fifth revisiting it's really interesting because he, he's trying to capture this moment. And it's not uh, uh, some other person who gets shot in the scenario in the, the story. It's the narrator. The narrator, but it, it's like a hypothetical recollection. So he's taking the pictures and he's looking at it and it's like, oh, 
there's this weird kind of energy between her, like the woman and somebody across the way. And it looks more sinister. What if me intervening had not had turned something on me? And it, it's like that narrator trying to narrate from the perspective of having died at that moment. And it's really complex and even more so than the film. Like, and it, it's really fascinating kind of the, what becomes sexier and more marketable about the film is kind of the, the murder mystery of it. That's probably how you sell it, but that's not at all what the film is about in the same way that the story is not at all about that. It's about hypotheticals and projections and narrations and presenting a story. And that, that is, I don't know what I'm saying other than just to say that the story is in the same way, very dense and very particular about the mo. That's what you're saying to, or Scott about the, the film transformation of the point of view is really, that is something. And I think Antonioni is another one of those filmmakers like Tarkovsky that like the point of view of the film and the camera, it, Things enter the frame in weird ways, like in he'll obscure things and tell a story just about ankles and calves for two minutes. Like it, it just the way to distort the POV to to put things in way of the, the visual narration or telling of the film is is getting at. And I think the closest thing to that kind of hypothetical narrative perspective of having died in this hypothetical scenario sorry listeners this is very pretentious and up its own ass but that's that's how i live my life it's 2023 i'm not lying about it anymore that's how i about the legs and ankles made me think of a a similar moment in stray dog kurosawa oh yeah 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 which i guess came out in 49 and now i'm wondering if there's kurosawa influence in antonioni's work i would hope I would love to, to think of Antonio watching the Kurosawa stuff. That'd be really cool. But the, the closest to that kind of like perspective of having died, there's a shot and I was showing uh, Scott this last night where he goes to the bush where the body was the day after and it's gone. And he's looking down at it. And then there's a perspective of him from above. The camera's looking down at him from above. And he turns his chin up and looks above. And then the perspective of the camera changes to looking up. And then it pans down onto him looking dead straight. So it looks like the perspective was from lying down in the bushes. and But you, like it, it's a different perspective than we were led to believe two seconds earlier. In the same way, Zeke, like that small moment trying to re- – I did the same thing. Back 15 seconds, back 20 seconds, trying to capture it. Like th- those little moves, like the perspective – shift there was a really interesting i don't know that that's the location where you would play with the story like the the short story origin because that's where all of it takes place is is that location so i this time and again i watched that video essay that kind of had slowed that moment down and then watching it with that context and then having reread the story like just a strange strange shift in the camera perspective i have a question about another scene and I, again, I, I would have gone back to to watch this again if I had time. But the one where he walks into like is is that like his apartment that he's sharing with the artist? Like I think I, so. I also, never okay. So when he walks in, and he sees like the woman, and the artist having sex, and there's this glimpse of like back on like the kitchen counter, 
it looks like is there like moldy bread or rotten fruit or something like that and then it just jumps back and then he's kind of talking to the woman while she's having sex with him and then he leaves and like i didn't quite i guess part of it was i was unclear about first of all about their relationship like i'm like seeing that scene at first i was like oh no he caught them having sex and i, cause I thought she was with the photographer but then it made me wonder like oh maybe she's actually like with the artist and that's why, like, nobody's really reacting, you know, or maybe she has a thing for the photographer, but she's with. And then, like, I was like, why did they show on the count? Like, what? So, like, it was a bunch of stuff that happened that I was like, okay, I, I can't really figure out exactly what's going on. I also couldn't quite tell, you know, she's like mouthing words to him and I couldn't quite get it. So, so I don't know if, if, if any of you sort of had more insight to that scene and the whole, the relationship and why they showed the counter in that little flash, like any significance to that. I think the first time I watched it, I assumed she was with the artist. Um, okay. But this time, I listening to the dialogue when he's talking to Vanessa Redgrave about being married but not married, feels like we had kids but we didn't have kids. Like, I, that's another favorite part is the lines that he says there is like, she's not beautiful, she's dot, 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 easy to live with. No, she isn't. That's why I don't live with her. And so, like, I, I was wondering if he was talking about her in that if that's the the dynamic of that relationship because he kind of checks in with her throughout like two or three times throughout the film but that i also was thinking about like the voyeuristic nature of that scene like it, it, there's nothing salacious about it like it's very kind of matter of fact that they don't sexy it up you know but mm-hmm. there's this like he's been a voyeur this whole time taking pictures of things you know like and that candid moment where the thing that gets him excited and obsesses is like this candid uh, interaction, observing someone without their knowledge, and then they do. And then she sees him see her have sex, and then it's an exhibitionist thing. So I thought that was a really kind of interesting or perpendicular parallel that the inversion of voyeurism is exhibitionism. And I don't know, there there seems to be more there than you're, you're sleeping with my roommate who's a uh, the artist like it, there's more there yeah for sure i'm not sure what what the configuration is yeah to go back to the swinging 60s of it all too like the 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 more free love at this point like drugs and alcohol and art and sex and how those def- definitions are kind of in response to the really rigid deferential british society right like very strict very very received english bbc wearing coat and tie to deliver the news over the radio that kind of i always steal that from monty python when they were talking about their growing up in the 60s and stuff and like doing stuff in the 60s that um yeah i'm i anybody else have any thoughts on that like i yeah i think i yeah i think i also thought it was the that, that she was with the artist and um but i don't know i mean it did between that scene and then the the uh, threesome scene with the models and I, you know all those themes kind of blend together with how the characters in each of those scenes are used and how I don't know yeah just all the themes of voyeurism and and, and that are kind of run throughout those. I, I love when they use the the sheet of paper like kind of as a stand-in barrier for like a sheet of the bed or all, like I, I love that that element of it was really. I also thought it was nice to have the the artist as a character to kind of show the contrast between like how how confident to the point of like arrogance I feel like the the photographer was versus like the art, artists tend to be seem to be more tortured like 
you know, like kind of, you know, and, and I wonder if how much of that has to do with like the nature of painting versus photography where, you know, again, coming back to that idea of like, yeah, I just take all the pictures and then I find the value in them later, you know? So the, it's almost as if the real art doesn't come in until you're kind of looking at the pictures you've already taken and, and kind of putting them together into a collection. Whereas with the artist, it's like every, every brushstroke has to be intentional, you know, or, or every splatter or whatever, you know, whatever your medium is like, you're, you're bringing it into creation. You know, it doesn't exist until you, you make an action. And, and, you know, I feel like you really see that in him kind of struggling with like, you know, yeah, I, I don't know if this is good, but you can't, you can't buy it. It's not for sale, you know? So there's maybe some connection where he likes what he's doing, but maybe is he trying to struggle with doing something you know, that the world will also like too. And, you, you know, you don't get the sense that he's just running off telling his agent what's going to happen, you know? Um, and, you know, he definitely seems like more, more flighty, not, not as like focused, not, not as in the moment as they say, you know, the photographer is definitely in the moment. Like he is, he is fully present every second of that film and what he is doing and what he's experiencing. And with the artist, you almost get a sense of like, you know, uh, uh, yeah, like, like almost observing himself and being stuck in his head about like what his process is and how he's doing it. Um, you know, even when they're having sex, he's kind of oblivious to the fact that the, the, the photographer's there. Like, I mean, I, I think you would hear the door open and right. be like, Oh, Hey, you know, and there's just those slats, you know, it's not like, you know, it, it just because she was facing up, I don't think you would, Oh, there's someone else here. Like that seemed kind of weird, but yeah, maybe it's just, again, he was probably just lost in his own head and oblivious to what's going on around him. So I thought that was, that was a really interesting dynamic to see two different types of artist types. You just, just uh, made a connection for me, not necessarily shumbled right? But you mentioned that the photographer's art doesn't really happen until he's done basically until he's developed the film. Even mm. it doesn't happen in the developing or in the taking, but that you see in other places, you see where the art is in the taking, right? They have 20 different lenses and they set lights up and they alter the, right? That's such a, like, I wonder if that was a conscious decision here that they wanted this type of photography to be the post development type of phot photographic art, or if that was just crucial to the plot or what. But, but the connection you, you know, made me see was actually with wine, where, you know, part one of wine is the growing of the grapes and that's its own whole culture but then part two of the wine is the turning the grapes into wine which is also its own whole culture and the sort of standard saying is that new world as in western hemisphere wine is made in the the winery in the part two of that after the grapes are picked and that's where the work is done the artistry the decisions but that old world wine is made in the vineyard with mm. the raising of the grapes and just that there are, that phrase sort of embodies the, the general differences between these two regions and the way they approach winemaking. And I don't know, I didn't think I'd ever be connected winemaking to photography to art in general, but, but here we are. So thank you. Yeah. How, yeah, how much more niche a fucking podcast can we get? Is the fucking comparison of vinters and the development of wine <laughs> to photography and art and truth in film <laughs> i don't know who this is for except me and i just love it so much thank you for, for making this thing <laughs> thank you for bringing us the film certainly real you quick made this thing. i am very proud of us all for not bringing up the austin powers parallel but now is the time 
obviously. <laughs> Give it to me, baby, as you're clicking away at a British accent. I'm sorry. Like, it's there. Oh, I, I could okay. not not think of it. And I've brought two Austin Powers origin Kirk, story movies honestly. to the podcast. <laughs> What's your other one? I'm it's sorry. Honor Majesty's Secret Service, where he oh, wears yes. the ruffled shirt. <laughs> it's I, I, Austin Powers is such a such a bizarre mishmash of, of references to previous aesthetic work. You know, it's really it didn't really occur to me. Oh man. It's really the documentary now of its time. <laughs> I, you're not <laughs> they, wrong. You might be giving it a little too much credit, but like those are you don't make those films if you don't fucking love James Bond and want to ape and mock everything about it. That's why they worked is because yeah. they're so lovingly made. And there's a lot of fart jokes. From there's Antonio some... to fart joke. Right, there's, there's admiration of something where you admire it by taking it seriously, and there's admiration of something where you admire it by absolutely destroying it. And uh, Austin Powers and the Man from Uncle, the more recent film, I think are the two sides of that coin. I would argue. And Get Smart falls somewhere in between. Steve oh, yeah. Get Smart. Oh, it man. might be time, Scott. It might be Do you time. Think it's time. Come to your favorite section. I'll let him page through his notes here. Ten pages of notes, listeners. This is this isn't fun. Who's this for? This but is how much <laughs> space is between each note? How big is your writing? You know it's pretty it's pretty dense. This is like Okay, fair enough. Victorian <laughs> Because you know, if you started just taking your notes sloppily at random and then like kept finding more and more and suddenly you go hey this is 10 pages but i took up half a page with two sentences that are not straight All right that's different than what you just showed us there which is normally sized writing that goes i'm on finding i don't know if this is just like typing too much on my phone but when i'm writing notes now watching movies i'm like this like it's like, not even like a anything, guitar. Like, like, yeah. I'm playing it sideways. I'm writing down like Egyptian hieroglyphics for some reason. I don't know what that is about. Yeah, I mean, just the the, la- the last the final moment of the film, like the the idea, the mime sequence. I just the end where he he buys in and then the auditorily, and that's the thing. It's such a ver- visually dense film, like the auditory angle on it is very kind of incidental. And the truth that we find, like what signals what's happened is only auditory at the end. And I just think it's just a really interesting grace note, like one of the few notes in the whole symphony, you know, like it, it just very strange and very interesting. And I didn't like it the first time. And the more I've gone back to it, it's like, oh, it's that Don Quixote thing. I think I'm fascinated with people who reject reality and choose fancy flight of fancy and that that is part of the 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 joy and terror of the ending is what it is anything real can i substantiate what i saw or do i care and will i live in among the clouds instead and i think he chooses the clouds and i think that's really cool i was gonna say i really like that the uh mimes book ended the film um you know i think coming in and just seeing mimes right off the bat it was like don't know what this is, don't know where it's going. And if it kind of had just left it at that, I mean, you, you know, you get the scene um, where he's driving through the protest as well. And that is kind of just a standalone thing. I think it does a lot to kind of show his character. Um, as we were talking about it, one thing that came to me was way back to the conversation about whether or not he's an asshole or like how much of an asshole is he? It's interesting that he's mostly an asshole to people who 
I guess, impact his work or who he feels he has power over or who he's competing for power with, right? Like talking to his agent or talking to the models that he's photographing or talking to people um, in his circle, he tends to be more terse and more direct and more aggressive. Um, when he's driving his car through a protest or when he's going around and, and there's a truckload of mimes, right? He's kind of not as bothered or aggressive to those kind of interruptions to his day. So that was interesting to see. But yeah, I think just having the mimes on either end to ground the film, that's a sentence that's never been said before, but um, I think it did kind of ground the film. I don't know. I, again, though, I, and one question maybe I have to to wrap up on or kind of what I was thinking through, it does feel like it's a lot of nothing and then a little bit of a mystery you know, who done it, what did I fall upon, and then nothing again, right? Like the murder mystery part doesn't really go anywhere. And I'm just curious to think if I didn't read the synopsis before I clicked play on the movie, how I would have felt. Or, you know, if I was in the 60s and I was sitting down in the movie theater to watch this, and you're just sitting there through that first like 50 minutes or an hour that's nothing, right? Like him just going around him coming across some minds, him taking some pictures, him, um, you know, seeing some people in the park, like what is there to keep you drawn to it? Because I do think that the discovery and Vanessa Redgrave and, you know, that whole scene, she approaches him, she goes to his house, give me the pictures. Like that tension is really well done. And then him developing the pictures is really well done. But the amount of, I don't want to call it fluff, but the amount of like nothing around that, I don't know. I, I'm just curious, like, what's the hook? What's the, yeah, end? what's the hook? Like what keeps you watching it? Um, I don't know. And I, I don't know if that's just me with a modern lens, like I said earlier, of instant gratification, wanting it to be like, boom, let's get to the mystery. Boom. Oh, <laughs> here's the high stakes for it versus like, it's okay to just sit in this more, um, artistic rendering of a film and, and then character development and, you know, just going where it leads and being okay with that. I don't know. I, I, was there any part of it for any of you where you wished it did delve more into the murder mystery or where you felt like you're like losing connection to it at all? I don't know. Well, the obvious answer to your question, Z, because that apparently life was so terrible in, 19, in the late sixties <laughs> that sitting in a movie theater was better to, <laughs> Better than experienced humanity, even if the movie was bad. <laughs> um, but I, Beats working, literally. Is that all right. I want? I think that it, I, I think it's an issue of expectation for me that mm -hmm. I went in expecting mm -hmm. a tighter mystery, mm -hmm. and all of the emptiness or disappointment I'm feeling comes from that expectation. That yeah, if instead yeah. I had gone in expecting another Antonioni movie after Red Desert, I would have come out much more satisfied. Mm -hmm. I've definitely said this to joel about a thousand times i don't know if i've said it on podcast yet but my first tarantino film was inglorious bastards and from the trailer was mine too <laughs> i expected it to i didn't know what a tarantino film was what that meant mm -hmm. right so from the trailers i expected a largely plotless just gory slaughter fest of nazi killing mm -hmm. action movie big dumb thing right and obviously it wasn't that and i came out of it feeling confused because it had been really good but it was not at all what i left my house for that day mm. right like if you, you go out and you want a really nice steak and you get to your restaurant and they serve you really high quality sushi that's great but no matter what on the drive home you're gonna be kind of feeling empty right 
mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how good the sushi is. It didn't, didn't matter how good Inglourious Bastards was. I was never going to leave the theater, you know, having got what I wanted that day. And that's the power of expectation, right, when it comes to film or to food or to lots of things. So I definitely got a little bit of that effect here. And especially in that first chunk, you know, before we got to the mystery, and then more so afterwards when the mystery could go anywhere. But that's not really the fault of the film. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, I, when I summarized it to prime you guys, I didn't say murder mystery, right? I didn't. No. Yeah. yeah. I, I tried so. to. I tried to make it ambiguous because, and and now that you've seen it, you see the difficulty in saying what it is about, right? Because my yeah. my thought was, okay, it's a photographer. It's about it's a period piece. It's about the art movement, and it's a photographer who ends up capturing something he doesn't expect. That that's, and I I went in with nothing. I always go in with nothing. That that's when I'm watching some like I and th- that the the buy in like the the watching. I'm always like, what is this? And that's the act of watching. I experience when I go in cold. That's mm. what's keeping me on my seat. Is like, what the f- is this? Where is it going to go? Even if you reach that point nowhere. where it reveals itself, and, right? Yeah, yeah. In the and same like, Red Desert has that same kind of listless, strange, open, mm. ambiguous ending in the same kind of way. Where why is this beach here? Why are we here? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it is a, an expectations thing, and it taste thing um i'm the problem it's me because (laughs) if i'm no but if i sit down to watch a thing and it's not anything right like if i'm like what is this and it's not going anywhere i think i have less less patience for that and i'm like well this is just 60 minutes of nothing i'd get kind of cranky and i'd not want to watch it anymore so i do think that seeing the synopsis actually helped because i'm like okay he's going to discover a murder Mm -hmm. right Versus like, oh, he'll come across something, right? But knowing that it's a murder, I was like, okay, like, when is the murder part? And then we get to that, and then it doesn't really go anywhere. Like, again, I I didn't dislike it. I I think I really enjoyed this as a movie for kind of pushing what I would typically go watch. I do think I probably am guilty of not, I don't know, I, I, I yeah, again, instant gratification or something that does have a more uh linear or definitive kind of start to finish not even start to finish but just like a, you know we, we started this conversation talking about plot and what was delivered and i think that is an interesting thing that's still floating for me because the plot of the movie being somebody discovers a murder while taking pictures is very different than than what was presented what? Yeah. and not in a bad way but like that's just you know that's kind of where that difference lies and i think i do like it for that reason right that it was more exploratory and had less boundaries and was more flowy. I do still want to see what it would be like if it was a movie that was like a horror film where a photographer accidentally films a murder and then a person who was complicit in the murder goes to his house and is like banging down his door to get the pictures and like it's very tense and spooky. I think I would like that as well, but I like this too. Me liking boring, slow things is not you having a problem. (laughs) Like I I feel like sometimes... It, it comes across that way listeners like no it, it's like mm-hmm. i i'm finding whatever it is and it's because it's strange i've watched so many of the same thing and i watch a lot of the same movies over and over again so in my head i'm like okay let's add something to discography let's put it on shuffle mm-hmm. and that that's that i guess that's the kind of weird i am is like <laughs> anything anything new for variety's sake 
Like I'm watching right now, I'm in the middle of a, a werewolf whodunit movie. It's called The Beast Must Die. It's from like the 70s. It's a black exploitation film. And it's a whodunit in a house. It's Clue, but with a werewolf. It's amazing. <laughs> I was falling asleep during it because I was tired. It's like, no, I'm going to rewind 40 minutes. I'm starting it again. <laughs> That's what I'm doing after this. So like, <laughs> I'm also the guy who brought Gods of Egypt and Batman forever. Like, why are you giving me any, no clout has been earned over here <laughs> from the mind that brought you. <laughs> the mind that brought you Batman forever unironically. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny how bringing Daredevil unironically is somehow more bulletproof than bringing <laughs> Batman Forever. Like just from from a pop culture, from uh, people who don't like things perspective. Like it's such a. I, I think it's like, easier with with Batman Forever because we have the first two to compare Batman right. Forever. <laughs> no, that's fair. So it's like there, there's a little bit of um, objectivity there. <laughs> Whereas with Daredevil, it's like, well, this was, you know, when, when you know, these comic book films were new and, you know, it's, it's good and it's bad, you know. But, yeah, like, I feel like with Batman Forever, it's hard to go, oh, yeah, I like that one. But, like, oh, yeah, like comparing them to Batman and Batman Returns and be like, no, no, Batman Forever, that's the best one. They, they hit their stride at number three. It's like, I don't, you know, nobody but you says that. It's the Tokyo Drift of the Batman film. It really is. I would, I, we need to do like a top 10 Joel's picks where, like, we need to know which of my movies has the least things happen. <laughs> like, the most of the nothing, of the work, like, least. Is, <laughs> is Halloween 2 your favorite of the Halloween series? You mean 3? <laughs> which one? 3 is the season of the witch. Oh, yeah, the one without Michael with Myers. The, okay, yeah, yeah, so it is the 3. It's always the 3rd. <laughs> no, I hate that film. Because <laughs> I love 2. <laughs> No, I like I like some bizarre of the Halloween sequels. Actually, I like H two O. Sue me, H two O and Resurrection. Rhymes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that 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 adds up. That tracks. <laughs> well, on that note, let's we can go to. <laughs> All right. Next. So next up is me. Oh, are we not? We're not going to do my segment. I forgot about yours. Sorry. Go for it. <laughs> How dare you, We were talking you, about sir. other movies that got picked, and I was just, deep. like, looking at the list and thinking about <laughs> red kicks. And... I saw the excitement die behind Tim's eyes. He's like, oh, did we miss it? Did we miss it one time? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's do it. Favorites, like, go. It is, it is time for another <laughs> situational movie recommendation. I was going to say, uh, favorite films that feature a photographer. Spider-Man's a photographer, so I'm going Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. You, Thank you. you pick Spider-Man one. I'll pick Spider-Man two. There Tim, Tim take um Spider-Verse, and we're done. Right? No, he'll yeah. take three because he'll defend. That's more central to the plot. Parts of it. He'll defend parts of it. <laughs> he'll defend one photographer in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Is I mean Rear Window. It kind of classic, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That counts. There's a camera. Someone's taking pictures of something. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say uh, Nightcrawler, Ooh. which isn't. I guess it's more video than photo, but that's a, you're always you're always <laughs> rebounding against the fine. But I, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing too. It would be nice to do a, a like a. I was thinking Superman because Jimmy Olsen's a photographer, but like <laughs> it's just an incidental relation. <laughs> 
No, I think I think Blow Up is probably the most fascinating one that I've seen. Um, there's a lot of doesn't Lilo take a bunch of pictures in Lilo and Stitch? Isn't that a big part of mm. her? Is like the, the the camera? She does take pictures, but I don't recall how big it is. It's been a long time. I think at the end there's like a montage of like their their photos on the fridge because it's like the family is together. Yeah. Oh, what about uh, Me- not Memphis is burning, Paris is burning. What's the what Memphis what? Mem- not Memphis Bell. That's, I'm <laughs> jumping ahead. The one in te- in Tennessee with Jarmouche. Uh, oh, he takes oh. pictures of the hotel room instead yeah. of uh, Mystery Train. Mystery Train. Oh, never mind. It's Rick Van Owen from Jurassic Park: The Lost World, played by Vince Vaughn <laughs> in the worst sequel of the Jurassic <laughs> series. I love that. One. That's my answer. The Lost World. <laughs> Is that also part three of the franchise? <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> part okay. three of that franchise sucks. is that the one part three with the spinosaurus where at the he has the dream with the velociraptor says alan alan <laughs> that's okay. jurassic three <laughs> mine's the one where uh uh it's all about like gold bloom is the main character like there's no one to even him out <laughs> oh that's right i like what you mentioned about this uh Mystery train, doing it too, which is in Memphis, because even though only the one character takes only some photos, and he's one of the three groups of short stories, right? That feels like it connects way more to blow up than anything else we've mentioned Mm. about these these people drifting through this town at this particular point in time, right? Potentially the Secret Life of Walter Mitty? Question mark. I love that movie. I mean, yeah, great movie. I. You referenced that last night. I was like, oh, I want to watch that too. Um, Yeah, oh, he's, um, he isn't the photographer, right? It's the Sean Penn character. Yeah, Sean Penn is. Yeah. Sometimes I don't take it. I like that line a lot. Yeah, I love that line. It's so, it's so right. I almost hate it for being on film. (laughs) Like, it's also great. Like, because it's coming from Sean Penn, it like, like they've cast him for a reason. He's definitely that guy. He has a whole tone. And it coming, I don't know, for some reason in that moment, it works and it shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I actually haven't seen this movie yet, but I've seen many clips in, in um, some of my, my film scoring classes, but uh, Road to Perdition with mm. Jude Law's character, how he'll like take pictures of like the the, the dead people. Um, mm. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen so many important parts of that i feel like i have a sense of what happens and it's gonna suck when i finally watch it and it's like oh, okay yeah the ending is ruined for me but um but then again like the stuff i've seen it's like i don't care that it's ruined like i i need to watch this film at some point because it's like so good but yeah his his character is a weirdo uh memento question mark oh yeah that's a good I one i was wondering if somebody was gonna bring that one up or Scott, did you finally see Memento? Nope, still on my shelf. God damn it. We need to have the, it's okay, discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I just finished a book. It took me a year to read. All right, I'll get to Memento. No. The other one for some, I'm thinking Blair Witch, because it's Hannah. Oh, Hallie. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. From, I was thinking about that earlier, from Nightcrawler to Blair Witch to mm-hmm. found footage. I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed Blair Witch. Like, I, I was really surprised how well that aged. Because the 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 trend it kicked off very rapidly became stale and overdone. Mm-hmm. I, I feel very rapidly, right? So it, we talked about this a little bit with Citizen Kane, right? When you go back to a thing that was first and the novelty of being first is gone, 
what's left. And yeah, Blair Witch holds up. I think the first Paranormal Activity holds up in that mm-hmm. same same way. Yeah. The rest, yeah. maybe not so much. If we're also oh. doing like like found footage video camera stuff, then uh, Chronicle, I think. Oh, I still haven't seen that, actually. Me neither. It's, it's streaming so, somewhere. I forget what service I saw it on. But yeah, I definitely want to watch it again. Yeah. Thinking of uh, photographers, I'm going to lock in the photograph um, with Lakeith Stanfield and Issa Rae. Oh, um, it's I've a very good that. romantic, not really, ro- not really a rom-com, more a romantic drama. Uh, 11 out of 10 would recommend really good. She's a photographer. Her father was a famous photographer. Photography's central-ish to their relationship. Uh, really beautiful movie. In terms of constructing reality, we saw Goodbye Lane on the podcast. We mm-hmm. spent a lot of time pretending that East Germany is still around, but that involves a lot of relabeling food, shooting fake news broadcasts. Um, do they right. make a fake newspaper at one point? I might be imagining that to cram it into the... I think they did. To make relevance, but like, just in that sense about the, the visual things presented to you are the things that construct your wider reality beyond what you could see. Uh, if it, has anybody seen Texas Chainsaw? Mm-hmm. No. There's a framing device of photos in that how it starts and how it ends just from thinking of the, the sound that it makes for some reason that made me, that's such a good movie. That's such a <laughs> movie. <laughs> Turning to Google, I've got one hour photo here. Speaking of <laughs> mm-hmm. that's Robin Williams, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I haven't seen that one. I, I tend I to either. avoid the creepy Robin Williams ones cause he's so good and I don't want him to be, a bad guy. <laughs> That's fair. Even though he's I had so that good. problem with uh, Steve Carell in a film called The Way Way, way, way Back. Back, which is excellent. But I kept waiting for his character to be funny, and he wasn't. <laughs> it was very jarring. Oh, now that it's been made into an animated film, we could add Killing Joke. Oh, oh. this is a but to, that movie. To is. acknowledge that animated <laughs> adaptation as anything other than terrible is is kind of unconscionable. Look, the twenty yeah. minutes of the comic book. That is in that movie is pretty good. You're right. <laughs> the You're rest right. of it, however, the tiny portion that is an actual adaptation is fine. Once he gets to the amusement park and they do all the lines we like, it's fine. <laughs> when he's fucking bad, girl is a problem. <laughs> Another, uh, you know, exi- exhibit in my case of more filmmakers need to be willing to do what Tarantino does and let things just sit. <laughs> you know, let scenes be right doesn't need to be things happening on screen every moment or dialogue are there any good spy movies that revolve around sneaky photography i was just thinking of the rock because the the microfilm that he hides in the the church because he took pictures there yeah <laughs> like there's always some in- element of photography in bond films like he's right capturing that, something that 20 seconds of a scene in motion that freezes every three seconds when a camera shutter noise happens <laughs> right <laughs> but i i don't know that it's See crucial. now I'm thinking about Central. the photographer in the uh, the wedding episode of uh, BBC Sherlock because like the the one invisible person at a wedding like the one person who's in none of the photos mm. is the photographer so like that hiding in plain sight aspect of it I like that I think we squeezed the life out of that one <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, now we'll leave it behind a shrub or maybe we won't <laughs> we'll leave it for a while and then we'll come back and get it. <laughs> No photographers were harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> Does the Men in Black Neuralizer count as a, perver- a, a an adaptation of photography? 
No, absolutely, absolutely not. not. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's got the click, it's got the flash, no. it's got the warm up noises, and then it undoes the moment instead of preserving the moment. A camera does it, removes it. This Zeke was like, "No, I'm I'm I've put up with this too no. long. You stretched." It. <laughs> no, can't do it. <laughs> can't do it. Not today. Stars, but you know, artistically, I like the effort, but <laughs> maybe maybe zoom in a little bit on it. We'll see. I'll just neuralize you and pitch it again in a different way until I get the reaction I like. <laughs> That was the most stretch of stretches I've ever seen from no, this guy. I, I don't think it matches your recommendation category at all. But just thinking about, you know, photography is a moment that happens in a visual yeah. medium. I got you. I saw what you were trying. This film has cave painting in it, and that's the process of photography. <laughs> oh, he blinked. Technically, all films are on film with cameras used. So... <laughs> Well, thank you all for sitting through another Antonioni. I, <laughs> in in the ever widening discussion of how Joel should uh, preface a film from his head, <laughs> I, I I really look forward to to do all of our discussions, and it's really cool to bring stuff like like who am I going to make sit next to me and watch this on? Like it's not a user friendly movie. And I really appreciate you guys like watching it with me and engaging with me about it because it, it means a lot to me. And it's so cool to have a place to bring stuff with it because this kicks around in your head. Like I, I can't, the amount of explaining I would have to do to a civilian about it <laughs> without seeing it to try and explain the weird, like you guys had seen it. I couldn't put the plot together for you, you know, like it, 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 it means a lot to have the safe space to, to, discuss it with you guys so thank you for that thank you I, yeah likewise for all of the things that i bring and that everyone brings and i said at the beginning i get so much more out of film as a medium because it comes through the three of you either through your picks or through your analysis so thank you and genuinely thank you for blow up which is you know mm-hmm. wonderful in its own right and a second antonioni film which is a wonderful thing and then of course has inspired how many remakes now <laughs> three <laughs> I think, but, you know, makes it a, a foundation of a particular, uh, not a foundation, I guess, but a pillar of a particular portion of film and film history. So thank you. Anytime. Thank you all. <laughs> Does that bring us on to next month? I think so. I wonder what it could be. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I, it's finally happening. And yet again, you know, I said that with Casablanca and Citizen Kane, you know, there's this sense of that they've been overhyped. And I'm worried that my next bit, which is Memphis Bell, has now become overhyped. I, I hope I've been hyping it in terms of finally getting to show it to you, not hyping it in terms of anything to do with the content of the film, right? Because when you just... first introduced the film like years and years ago, I think we were talking, I can't remember what we were talking about, but you were just talking about it's making you sob. I think that's the one particular segment, yes. Yeah. It was a that's, situation. I like. I've been tensing for that. <laughs> it's arguably like not even integrated into the plot of the film. It's sort of mm. ancillary, but you'll get there, right? Um, but yes, for watching Memphis Bell, the 1990 film, sort of semi fictional, right? Hollywood production of the real life events, as opposed to the documentary from the 40s called Memphis Bell. Um, the film we're looking for with Matthew Modine is on Amazon right now. It is a couple of buck rental. 
my apologies. I did find Blow Up on HBO, actually, for free last night. It's funny, Tim and I don't have HBO anymore. Oh, it was funny. It was so, like, no! Um, so, I, you know, my U.S. 8th Air Force was based in Britain and was bombing Germany during World War II. You're all probably unintentionally familiar with the images of the B-17s, the flying fortresses, bristling with machine guns and flying through German flak and fighters to try to deliver their bomb loads onto onto German cities. And uh, if you're familiar with Catch-22 at all, you know that crews served a certain number of missions. Was it 10? Whatever. Before their tour was up and they get to go home. But that for quite a while, no crews survived that many missions. And the whole situation was seen as kind of absurd. And so the film begins on the eve of the Memphis Bell's final mission. That if her crew survives this next one, they will be the first crew to do so. So this is a big deal, right? It's a big deal for the country because they'll have some heroes to bring home and go, hey, look at these you know, dudes that did all this cool bombing. It's very early in the war for America, so hmm. that sort of thing is important. It's a big deal politically and militarily because it will prove to all the people who say that this bombing is worthwhile and works that it, you know, is worthwhile and works. It isn't just throwing men at German guns for no good reason, right? And it's a huge deal for the crews, because if one crew can do it, maybe we'll survive too, right? And the first act of the movie takes place entirely on the ground with the, the bell and their airfield, and sort of the, it, it introduces us to the crew of the bell, the 10-man crew, and then also just mires in the, the pre-mission atmosphere. And then they go up and the rest of the film is their mission and that's it that's what you get um yeah i try i'm not not trying to give you hype about the thing itself i just like as you know i got derailed from picking this it's finally available on streaming and i haven't been distracted to put on some other um so yeah i'm excited it's also a little weirdly a it's pg-13 despite being a war movie and it's in some ways very hollywood right like our, our Memphis Bell crew, there's a scrappy guy from the Northeast who's the turret or ball turret gunner. There's the older guy who's the pilot who the whole crew looks up to. There's the young kid from the farm town who's the only virgin who they all tease, right? Like, it's so mm. cliche, you're going to sit there and roll your damn eyes. But then then they take off and the mission begins and all of that just falls away, right? And, and as much as I, I shit on um, We Were Soldiers for being like too sort of jingoistic right memphis bell commits some of those same sins in act one but it makes up for it i think with the rest of the film so i don't know we'll see right i'm really eager to see what you all think I, there's also a sort of i think we talked during sky crawlers about the weird weirdly very narrow band of time in which you have this setting of an airfield that's perfectly safe but also very proximate very close to violence right I was just so, thinking that the weird back and forth whiplash you get between the two settings and how that's very World War and it is. Memphis Bell doesn't do that. But then for World War II, there's a, a similarly very narrow occurring only in this one time and place specificity of these bombers that were covered in machine guns that were supposed to defend themselves from fighters without fighter escort because they had so many guns, right? And it's you see the visual language all over the place, Star Wars, right? But the actual atmosphere of that time and place. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited that presumably Tom Banks is still working on his third miniseries after Band of Brothers in the Pacific, right? Which is going to be this, the U.S. 8th Air Force. Super excited because other than this Memphis Bell movie, I don't really find it anywhere. So, mm. yeah. So we'll see. All right. I'm definitely like with more perspective on like what it's actually about. Like I'm really excited to watch. Like I 
excited for most of your picks usually, but when it's World <laughs> War II, I'm usually like, oh, am I gonna? Is this a sad one or is this a, a one I can engage? Like, I'm I'm really excited. I'm like, yeah, so long yeah, time I'm coming on this one. Too. Me too. Yeah, I was so glad you're just finally watching. <laughs> Otherwise, I was gonna just ship the disc to you all. Right? <laughs> the money, mail it around. So, thank you all for for agreeing to watch that finally. Thank you all for joining me in the Antio- Antonioni episode. Thank you, Joel, for bringing it. And of course, as always, thank you, listeners. Uh, you are part of why we do this, and we love you. Until next time, good night. Bye. 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 Movie Mumble comes to you from nerdsthatgeek.com. Visit nerdsthatgeek.com for all things Movie Mumble. Movie Mumble is hosted by Scott Murray, Joel Lewis, Tim Gerard, and Zeke Perez. The Movie Mumble theme song and all its variations were composed by Tim Gerard. The situational recommendation theme was composed by Joel Lewis, Scott Murray, and Tim Gerard, reluctantly. This episode of the Movie Mumble podcast was edited by Joel Lewis. So I do recommend the book. Don't read the last paragraph. And, sorry, I've been, this has been consuming me. Scott, I love you. Uh, but you were coming with some like sham wow energy with the headset and the polo shirt that you're talking about <laughs> World War II, like really intelligently. And I just with Tim just coming on, I was just like, what what a weird <laughs> You're gonna love my nuts.